You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 559. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 3C at a secret location they wouldn't disclose to me. Today's show is recorded on the 2nd of March, 2023. In today's episode, an air ambulance crashes in Nevada, killing five people, including the patient. Above Bob Hope Airport in Burbank, two planes lose separation. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Great Uncle Bob's. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 559 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently. Oh, and also the APG Poet Laureate currently. Currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining me from her lakeside studio in South, Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Aren't you glad that I suggested that we continue to uh, press forward with a recording today? I am. Albeit a short one. I am. I'm just so excited to see you guys. Now, when you say short one, you're not referring to my anime. I am not. Okay, good. All right, and so that's going to fade away just beautifully without me doing anything to it. And I'm going to hit this one right here and say. And also, joining us from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer is Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. Hi. Why are you giggling? Liz. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And this is where. We recorded some of. Yeah, that, Liz would say, future, "Hey, please. I'm going to be leaving you all and uh, see you." And uh, no, I'm I'm forcing her I'm to stay with us. Stay. Okay, so let me explain what's happening here. <laughs> Actually, I'm not really sure. But, Can you uh, really explain it? I don't know. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, I'm going to explain it. We were supposed to do the show today at 4:30 uh, Eastern time, and I I um, made the the grave mistake, the bad decision to pick up. Just this little simple overnight thing. Um, yesterday, I was just going to go out. And, and in fact, we were we were online, and uh, Liz and Captain Nick and I were going over some things from some show prep. Uh, believe it or not, we actually do show prep sometimes. Yes. And uh, so, I got this uh, call from Acme, and they said, "Hey, you want to go fly an airplane tonight, like late tonight, to uh, White Plains, New York, and then just deadhead back tomorrow?" And I'm thinking, hmm. I think I'll get back in time to, you know, get in and get in the car, drive back home, and then we could just start doing our show. Well, 
that didn't work out very well because, um, and I should have known that right away that that was a, not the right thing to do because I was not in my pilot brain, my pilot thinking, because let me tell you what I did. And, and these ladies don't know, uh, I left the apartment with, well, like things on like my, um, my big amplifier and stuff like, you know, stuff that I normally turn off because you don't want to leave electrical devices on while you're gone. And, uh, and then I left my wallet um, here. Oh, I don't know anything about leaving. No, no, I know. That's what I mean. You guys don't know this. So I, I got to, I'm thinking I'm going to ride Marta because I'm going to ride Marta and then I don't have to pay for parking. It's going to be, I'm going to be less than 24 hours. I'll be, and there's traffic because you know, the, the time for me to report was going to be like right in the middle of not good traffic. So I pull up to the Marta thing. I'm taking my time. I get out and I'm thinking, uh, Oh no, I think I left my wallet in the apartment and I don't have enough time to go back. And then I'm thinking, well, I can't ride on Marta because I, um, I don't have my breeze card, you know, to ride Well, that's not a big deal. I could buy another one, but I was planning to go through known crew member and known crew member. You have mm-hmm. to have this little yeah. barcode card thing to use known crew member. I have my passport, but I don't, uh, I didn't have my driver's license, but that's okay. As long as you have one government ID, but you got to have that stupid little, um, uh, known crew barcode. member with the barcode barcode thing. Mm. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to have to drive into, uh, and park in the Acme employee parking lot because I don't require a, you know, known crew member thing to get through there. And if they ask me, they never do, but I, I, I do have my ID and, but, and I have a passport if somebody, if I need another form of, of ID, and uh, of course, that, that wasn't required. She just looked at my ID. I got on the bus. But anyway, I mentioned the traffic. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I barely made it in time into the parking lot for you know my show time. Okay, so uh, I looked. By the way, before I pick up these things last minute, I always go to um, one of my weather apps, and mm-hmm. I looked at uh, Windy, which is one of my favorites, and I looked at the mm-hmm. forecast. Uh, and it said that, uh, you know, it was going to be a little cloudy, but not nothing, not low ceilings or low visibility. It was going to be pretty decent weather up there in White Plains. And I'm thinking, okay. So I accepted the trip and, you know, so I headed down to the airport and, uh, we're flying up there and I start looking at the weather and going, Hmm, well, the ceilings are kind of getting low and the visibility is coming down. And then we get a little closer we get a new update. Now they're talking RVRs and Fun. 300 foot ceiling. And the thing that really came to mind, remember just a few shows ago, we were talking about that Bonanza that crashed up there Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the weather conditions were basically identical to really similar. Yeah. And it really would just give me the, I'm thinking, I can't imagine. I'm in an airplane. Heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Heebie-jeebies. I'm in an airplane that is, is, uh, you know, technologically. Okay. It's like a Cessna 172 with the G 1000 stuff in it. You know, it's like an old airplane, but it has new avionics and stuff like that. So the airplane that 717 that I fly um, and I have two engines and I have, you know, pretty advanced avionics. And uh, even then I'm thinking, you know, the, the weather's kind of going, getting close to minimums. And guess what? That's exactly where they were when I came in and the couple of airplanes ahead of us were saying, oh, we saw the lights right at minimums. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? What was I thinking? Why did I accept this trip? But as I said, when I checked the weather, the forecast was fine. <sighs> so we made it in just barely and uh, got to the hotel late. 
and uh, and then I was scheduled to deadhead back today. And uh, as I mentioned before, it was going to give me a decent night's sleep, and I would be able to uh, deadhead back and have plenty of time to drive my car back and everything. Well, we got to the airport, and it was really, really foggy, and they were doing the RVR thing again. And this uh, Westchester County uh, White Plains is a Category 1 ILS system, and uh, you have to have, I think it's 1,800 or 1,600 RVR, um, depends on the, the setup. And uh, it was below that. And so all these airplanes that were coming in, that I was, the one that I was going to deadhead on coming up from Atlanta, SkyWest flight, um, had to divert. And all the other airplanes that were coming in had to divert to various places. So I'm thinking, okay. That was your ride home, right? That was my ride home. Yeah. Okay. No ride home. Finally, yeah. bottom line. It finally made it in. They had to divert to Syracuse. They came back, and then we loaded up, got home to Atlanta, and uh, I think I walked in the door here about a little after 7 o'clock. So that was my day, and it was a big mistake to take this trip. And So I'm kind of responsible for the reason for this hot mess, really. Um, So that's where we are. Well, we did decide that we were just going to shelve this until tomorrow, Mm -hmm. and we all said, yeah, we can do that. And then I realized I actually can't do tomorrow. Sorry. I have other plans that have already been made. Um, so knowing that, I said, eh, you know, if I could, if you want, we could knock out a few of these things yeah. this evening. Um, so, Which is what we're going to do because um turns out that Miami Rick was going to make it tomorrow, but he can't uh, make it. Oh, no, he was going to make, gonna it, make today, it today. And he today, can't make it tomorrow. But he can't make it tomorrow either. So uh, Rick and uh, myself and Nick whoever... C. Can make it on Sunday evening. Uh, we'll we'll cover a couple things um, uh, Sunday night. So it's just going to be a, an amalgamation. Is that did I say that right? Amalgamation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of uh, of different recordings. Conglomeration. Yeah, or a conglomeration, or a discombobulation. Probably more. Or a hot mess. A hot, a hot mess. mess yeah. And you know what? I'm not going to. Normally, I'd like put it all and everything in the right places and the news, and I'm not doing that. So. So you're going to have to suffer. Nobody got time for that. People, nobody got time for that. All right. So should we do a quick news thing? Sure. All right. Do you have one you want to do? Stand by for news. All right. I've already forgotten. Which one are we going to cover? <laughs> well, I say either the first one or the last one or, or for Steph. Okay. Um, the hmm. marriage banner or the uh, life flight? Mm. Either one. I don't know. There's a lot to say about the life flight one yet. No, it's no, pretty preliminary. Not. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that might be an okay one to do because we can just go through it sure. and talk about it. And Okay. Yeah. So which one? Flight, then. I'm, uh, you must have a different 1A, list. 1A. Oh, okay. That's the first one. Okay. Um, first item is uh, from 8 News Now. I wanted to say 8newsnow.com. <laughs> <laughs> because it does say that. It's a confusing, it's a confusing news station. <laughs> well, it's northern Nevada. They probably have snow up there, right? Um, um, now they do. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so here we go. Um, a pilot, flight nurse, flight paramedic, patient, and the patient's family member were killed in a care flight crash 
uh, Friday night near Stagecoach, Nevada, according to REMSA Health or REMSA Health. The Lyon County Sheriff's Office said it's Sheriff's Office said it began receiving multiple calls around 9.15 p.m. of a possible aircraft crash in Stagecoach, about 25 miles southeast of Reno. Search and rescue teams from Lyon and Douglas counties responded. REMSA Health identified the medical transport plane as a Pilatus PC-12 fixed-wing aircraft and said in a statement it went off the radar around 9.45 p.m. The plane was located around 11.15 p.m. Barry DePlantis, CEO and president of REMSA Health, said in a statement his organization is grieving the loss and extended its deepest condolences to the families. Um, let's see. DuPlantis said Central Lyon County Fire Department confirmed that none of the five people on board survived and that the families have been notified. And uh, if we're doing this one, that means I need to share the slides, but I don't have those slides available. So just use your imagination. We were going to show you a picture. Everybody, I think, knows, or most people that are listening to this know what a PC-12 is, a single-engine turboprop, um, mid-size um, airplane. What yeah. would you, how would you I mean, describe it's not- it? It depends on what your frame of reference is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think people who are not, um, who, whose idea of a very small aircraft is a small regional jet would describe this as being very small, but mm-hmm. for a turboprop, I think it's kind of midsize, you know, yeah. or, it, I mean, it's big enough to fit the, the medical team in there, the patient transport, have some basic medical setup or pre- fairly advanced medical setup, you know, to provide life-saving care en route to basically a tertiary care center where patient can receive higher level of care. So not terribly small, not huge, but kind serves like the purpose a, quite well. Like a, like a medium-sized biz jet, except for it's not a jet, it's a turboprop. Mm, it's smaller than that. Oh, okay. Well then. Yeah. No. Not much smaller than that. Forget that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't call it a medium-sized biz jet. Yeah. Well, we were, um, I think Liz has some, does Liz have some pictures? <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, I she do. does? Oh, does. yeah, I've got those ones. I just don't have the new one. Oh, okay. Well, look at that. We had a picture of, of a PC-12. Oh, um, if I had been paying attention, I would have noticed that she put that up there. Sorry. Take a look there and see. I thought we were not yeah. doing the slides at all. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it just depends on your frame of reference, but yeah, I'm okay. not sure in the just a regular passenger configuration how many they can have in there. Ten, eight, not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something, something like, that. like that. Eight to ten, I would guess. Anyway, so that, there's the wreckage that we're showing now. Again, all this will be in the show notes. And then there's a, um, uh, what would you call it, a flight, like a three-dimensional flight path. Flight path, yeah. Uh, that looks like it took off from Reno and uh, started heading to the south and the southeast and then was in this climb out past Virginia City and then... Uh, it at the at a certain point, uh, only about I don't know, not even ten thousand feet. Looks like um, it started to kind of wrap up into a tight spiral, uh, right spiral, and uh, looks like the speed is like way faster than probably the don't exceed speed of this airplane, three hundred ninety-eight miles per hour. I'm guessing is probably a little bit too high. Um. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, believe at the crash site they found most of the airplane intact except that it, a portion of the right wing. Um, so this is what you hear, by the way, or what I hear when we're doing the show. 
Um, <laughs> but now you're hearing it because Liz is still with us in the, in the, in the video. Um, and that, that was a timer that was probably, that would be the 15 minute mark, 15 Jay. minutes. There we go. Ding, ding, mm -hmm. 15 minutes. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, uh, part of the right wing was missing not too far away from the main wreckage. Uh, and, uh, the horizontal stabilizer was completely gone. It's a T tail horizontal stab on the, uh, PC 12. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was gone. Now they're, um, surmising or hypothesizing, uh, at this point, of course, it's not a, is that a word? Hypothesizing it just doesn't mm -hmm. sound right. Yeah. Um, nope, that, right. uh, they're, they're thinking that, uh, obviously not obviously that it could possibly be a situation where the airplane was overstressed for whatever reason, um, and, uh, exceeded its, its structural G limits. And that's why mm. pieces of the airplane broke off, or it could be that somehow it, they got disoriented and yeah, lost control yeah. and then in trying to recover from an unusual attitude that they overstressed the uh, airplane. Do you have anything, any, any uh, ideas, Steph, or anything you want to add to that? No, I mean, all the, you know, if you just look at what the, the rest of this article has some of the transcripts from the ATC communications, they were talking about reports of light to moderate chop, moderate turbulence all afternoon, Ooh. They're trying to climb up to uh, level two five zero. So oh, yeah, uh, and we one of our uh, they know that um, I think it was snowing pretty heavily, and Andrew in our chat room at the moment says there was a segment for icing as well. Ah, okay. So there was de the the weather was definitely poor. Mm -hmm. I did hear though that the plane was actually parked in a hangar, so they didn't have to de-ice before they took off. Mm. Okay. But they could have, they may have picked up ice. Depends on how long they took taxiing or, you know, whatever but, the. Yeah, but you can, this thing is, that has boots on it. And so you can, there are ways if you do pick yeah. up icing uh, in the air that you can shed it and get rid of it. Right. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what the uh, anti slash de ice setup is for the Pilatus. And maybe it's different. The Pilatus, I'm not, I'm not either. Probably boots. I would oh, think. here we go. The PC-12 is equipped with inflatable neoprene boots on the leading edges of the wings and there horizontal tail surfaces. Their purpose is to inflate and dispense any ice which may mm -hmm. accumulate on their surfaces during flight in atmospheric icing conditions. So, yeah, yeah it does have a that's pretty sure it would be boots. It makes the most sense in turboprop. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I know this is one we'll get more information on at some point. Um, you know, it's... Uh, at least in my world, it was fairly high profile. I know several folks who, who in, in my circle of friends who are flight nurses and work on medevac crews. And um, this always makes, these types of things always make big news in a very sad way. So, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I don't know why, but I hmm. never saw any of this <laughs> that I'm looking at right now. I think I just skipped down to the, uh, to the photos and completely missed reading all of this stuff here regarding the communications with tower and all the other stuff looks like uh, there was some confusion when they were taxiing out from Atlantic aviation to runway one seven left via Charlie. Uh, the air traffic control asked the pilot if they, if he needed help to find the exit, the pilot said, yeah, that's going to be a left of me. Is that right? 
And so uh, it looks like he, as the air traffic controller cautioned the pilot about the plowed snow and then said, right turn now, you're past the center line of the taxiway. I think you've got, you've gone too far. Um, I don't know if that's a factor in this. Or yeah, not. I think the, um, I know the uh, company that operates this particular um, medical charter, Medivac, um, is out of Utah. So not terribly far away, but I'm not sure how familiar with that um, airport the crew would have been. And I think also that this particular company has had like three or four like major incidents, accidents in the last couple oh, of years. Oh, I didn't know about that. I and I think that the see. NTSB is really kind of starting to focus on hmm. what's going on here. I think the three other uh, crashes were uh, uh, King Airs. Uh, I think this is hmm. the first uh, Pilatus. Well. That's a shame because certainly these types of flights, you know, you operating them with the uh, the goal of saving lives and getting people to timely medical care and to have all of that happen on top of it is, you know, it's just really tragic. It is. All right. Um, do we want to do a quick getting to know Steph or do we want to go to feedback no. and then get to know Steph? No, get to know her. Get to know Steph. Know. Here we go. It'll be quick. Getting to know all about Steph. Getting to like Steph. And she's hoping that you'll like her too. No, that's not right. I always screw up those words. Sorry, Steph. It's okay. I've gotten over that. It doesn't bother me anymore. Really? Yes. Okay. I have. Yeah. I have. It's in the past. Okay. Just like our love. Things for too long. <laughs> well. <laughs> So what have you been oh, up to, Steph? Um, sadly, nothing exciting. Um, speaking of poor weather, our weather here has been great, but also frustrating. Um, I know much of the country, at least here in the United States, has been kind of in this the grips of this very cold, um, snowy, kind of just very winter-like weather at the moment. Um but for where Jeff and I live, that's not been the case at all. We're kind of in this weird little wedge in the southeast here where it's been unseasonably warm, like very warm. Um, we've had multiple days that have been over 70 degrees Fahrenheit. One day that was over 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, definitely not the norm for this type of time of year. Um, that sounds great in theory. It's like, yeah, get outside and, and do things. And I was hoping to do some flying last weekend. Well... It was warm, but it ended up being quite rainy and low ceilings, so that didn't really work out. Um, I did go to our drop zone anyway. Um, one of my good friends there is an instructor and was hosting a canopy course for um, geared towards some of the newer jumpers. Um, we were hoping that we would eventually get enough ceiling to at least let them do some low-level jumps to work on flying their parachutes and doing some of their drills, and it just never really worked out. But um, it was great. I sat in on the course for the day and, and brushed up on some stuff myself. And then we had a chance to at least get all those newer jumpers. Um, most of them, you know, we do the, um, a lot of times when we're doing these canopy courses and people don't need a lot of altitude per se, they're not trying to go up to 14,000 feet and do a lot of, um, uh, just the, um, the, the part of the jump where you're not under canopy. So free fall, um, there's no real reason to do that if you're just trying to repeat drills and become proficient in flying your canopy. Um, so a lot of times we'll use our 182 for that. It's just 
reasonable time to altitude, get up to about five or 6,000 feet above ground level. And that gives them plenty of time to do what they need to do um, under canopy. Um, but unfortunately, we weren't able to get that even, but these jumpers hadn't actually been in the 182 before. So um, we did spend a little time with them in and around that airplane and show them how to um, get themselves situated appropriately. Some of the, the differences, you know, a lot of these, um, especially at our drop zone, um, jumpers are used to um, jumping some of our larger aircraft, again, relative term. So caravan, not too much bigger than the, the Pilatus we were just looking at. Um, Twin Otter, quite a bit bigger, um, but with very large <laughs> doors and um, kind of far away from where the, the pilot actually is. So there's not as much interaction or communication. Um, but there are some, some things to be aware of for jumping that smaller aircraft. So we went through those things. One is operation of the door because there, one person will be literally sitting right next to it. So we want to make sure that people know what we expect of them, what we're going to do in terms of opening the door, closing the door, getting the door to stay open in flight. Um, being aware of some snag hazards. Um, that same jumper that's sitting right by the door in the 182 is very close to the mixture control and also the fuel selector. Mm. Um, and I've seen it happen where either the mixture gets all the way pulled to cut off or the fuel selector accidentally gets turned to off, both tanks off. Um, so just things that we want them to be aware of as well. So were the... Were they teaching you how to make um, canapes? Uh, canopies? Canapes? Is that Can what that is? I didn't know what yeah. that was. Did you I was wondering why you were showing food. Them too? <laughs> yeah, they look pretty tasty. Mm -hmm. They do. We're hungry. <laughs> I'm just. I'm not sure what that has to do with skydiving, but okay. You know, pair of you so your parachute, also known as a canopy. So oh we, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. I, I was. I, I obviously I'm hungry. Sorry. Yes, I see that. I was thinking we told else. you to eat before we started this. <laughs> Actually, did. We did tell you to eat. I did have um, a wonderful. Um, I think he's hangry. I had a, a wonderful um, homemade Indian chicken birani rice. Microwave. Not homemade. It's microwavable. <laughs> sure. That sounds good, though. Yeah, it was know. good. Um, yeah, so I'm sorry. It's always, it's always fun to, to do those types of things. And just um, it's nice to be able to spend the time sometimes and go through that stuff on a little bit more intimate basis. So that was that was still enjoyable, even though we weren't actually up in the air and flying and jumping. Um, this weekend looks a lot nicer weather-wise, so hopefully I'll have some flying things to report next week. Cool. And other than that, it's been oh, it's been a challenging week at work. Um, not to get into all the details, but we had a power outage at one of my offices yesterday where I was at. So um, towards the end of the day, there's procedures that I do that require the um, apparatus that we use to perform the procedure to be plugged into power. So I had to cancel and reschedule those and we um, did what we could to see the people who are already there with our lack of lighting um, using just like our mobile devices that are connected to Wi-Fi basically or to um, to our cell service to be able to look up how primitive imaging reports <laughs> super <laughs> well it was actually very technologically advanced but mm -hmm. you know it wasn't like paper and pencil but it was just slows up the slows up the whole operation. And then today, one of our other machines was not working properly. So we had like an hour and a half delay getting started for the afternoon. So it's been, I share your frustration, Jeff, and things just Technology, not going according, no. just been not been going according to plan. It never lets you down. Not going Technology. according to plan. Not yeah. Tim Van Ram just showed up. Oh, right oh boy. Oh, boy. APG just showed up in my FB feed. My FB well, feed. Well, sorry you saw that, Tim. 
<laughs> you gotta go back for the explanation of all of this, Tim. We did that at the beginning. Yeah, you'll have to watch from the beginning. Yeah. We're not gonna explain it to you. Sorry, no. Tim. We do but love anyway, you. That's, but yeah, yeah. We only have so much. much time here and <laughs> yeah. And we've already on. used up quite a bit of it. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's what I've been up to. Not anything too crazy. Um I don't know. I'm 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 a fan of the warmer weather, although um definitely all the trees are are blooming and budding and the pollen is in the air already, which is also crazy. I'm sure we'll have another cold snap and it will kill all of it. It will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. I'm enjoying feedback. my uh, Costco Bordeaux. Kirkland. Chateau Kirkland. Kirkland. Chateau Kirkland. It's good. And it, it actually has been get, getting very, very nice reviews. Mm-hmm. No, uh, they actually, they're fairly known for that. And I think it's like, oh. it's like seven or eight dollars a bottle or something. I bought a case of it. Wow. And uh, it's like half gone. I, I gave up. Um, <laughs> Okay, sorry. Um, it's good fun? for you. They tell me wine, red wine's good for you. It's yeah, fruit. That's right. You're having fruit. It's exactly. moderation. Yeah, it's um, He's I, going vegetarian. It is Lent for me. I'm a Catholic, and uh, we uh, are one of the Christian faiths that uh, have a liturgical year, and we put emphasis on certain liturgical seasons like Lent. And uh, in general, it's not a requirement, but uh, it's encouraged that you give up something or take on something or, or both. And... Um, I was thinking about taking on uh, Steph and Liz, you know, and be more forthright. And uh, I think you've given up organization. I, I've so. given up all that, <laughs> and <laughs> I've uh, and I've given up beer. And so far, it's not hasn't been that long, but I I haven't had a taste of beer since uh, Mardi Gras, uh, Fat Tuesday. You're being very and, good. But I didn't say I was giving up alcohol. So wine is my friend, right. and gin and tonics as well. But anyway, it's good stuff. Okay, let's do some feedback. Okay. Yes, let's <laughs> moving on. She's like, you'll have your time to do your. I don't know. We can do Jeff's getting to know. Right nah, now, no, nah. Okay. nah. I think I, I did a little getting to know me in the last. Yeah, we know enough days, about that guy. Uh, at the beginning of the show, so that's Perfect. that's good for now. Let's do All right. some feedback. Uh, let's do some feedback. Captain, incoming message. All right, what did we decide we were going to do? Number 13. Number 13. Yep. Yep. Take it away, Steph. This is feedback. It says, for Steph. Excellent. Best of the web. Ode to an otter from AV web, half web. Um, This, uh, I saw this a little while ago, probably when someone shared it with us, but um, it's a video. It's a YouTube video, and it's fantastic. It's all about um, the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's not distracting at all. That's why no. This is what I, I, I hardly even I hear it anymore. I know. That's what You're I hear just all. like half an hour mark. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Um, you don't have to do that though, uh, Liz. It's okay. Don't have to do what? That, what you're doing. Half hour <laughs> mark. We, we know what time it is. Yeah, we don't we, care. We don't care. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is feedback number uh, 13 for Steph. Best of the web. Ode to an otter um, from avweb.com. Uh, and I've actually, this is a video, it's on YouTube. It's all about the the mighty, the venerable DHC-6, otherwise known as the Twin Otter, or Twatter, if you prefer. Um, the I think this is just the caption that came with the video, or maybe this is whoever sent this to us. I'm not sure who sent this to us. Can you tell me, Jeff? I can't find uh, that information. Yes, I can, Steph. Um, 
I believe I sent it to us. Oh, Liz. Yeah, it Piper was shared with us somewhere. Yes, we, we, you shared it with us in a group that we belong to. I shared to. it. Okay. And then I thought it was entertaining enough that yes. we needed to share it with the okay. community. <laughs> I don't remember where I got it from, but here's Ste the caption Steph that goes along this with it. Steph shared this with us. <laughs> <laughs> so if, you're, if you've sent feedback Just into us. Name. It's a big circle. <laughs> Just no, no, make no. up a name, Steph. <laughs> Dan. I just want to I just want to say this. If you've sent feedback to us and we have not gotten to it yet, it's because literally this was from like two months ago for me. So I'd forgotten that I was the one that came across this and shared it. I don't remember where I got it from. Anyway, the caption that goes along with it, I'll read it here because it's great. And then I think we'll play just a small clip of the video. Highly encourage you to go watch the video because it's very it's actually very well done, I think. And um, you know, Canadian. It's, it's their, Canadian and it was, well, you know, to Havland. It's and it's their love for the the twin otter. It says, whoever wrote this, I'm not sure. I've got a little stick time in a twin otter, throwing skydivers out the back door. I've got a little more time sitting in the back waiting to be tossed out, a task for which the DHC twin otter is perfect. DH6, DHC6 twin otter. They missed a letter in there. Um, and this humorous rap video by Buzz and Dorothy Andrusiak show how perfectly de Havilland got the otter for its intended purpose. Haul a lot of stuff almost anywhere you might, you think you might need to go where there's not much of a runway or no runway at all. The airplane is built, I think it's supposed to say hella strong, mm -hmm. with high aspect wings supported by beefy struts tied to robust fixed landing yeah. gear. Beefy. For power, de Havilland picked the Pratt & Whitney PT-6, which in subsequent years got more powerful variants to improve performance. When it was first appeared in 1965, the airplane found a ready market in the burgeoning commuter airline industry. The Otter was perfectly suited for a full cabin and short stage lengths to small airports. It could also be fitted with skis and floats, making it ideal to transport to unimproved parts of the far north. It was designed for easy maintenance, especially the engines, and with tanks in the belly could easily be safely hot-fueled without shutting down in deep sub-zero weather. We hot-fuel ours. Um, safely is... I would say safely with proper training, if you know anything about the Twin Otter. Um, 58 years after its first flight, the DHC-6 soldiers on around the world in jobs that no other airplane can quite do. De Havilland built 844 Twin Otters and Viking, which acquired the type certificate in 2006, has built a respectable 100, 141. For skydiving, the Otter's days may be numbered. This is true and quite sad. They're getting increasingly expensive to maintain and Garrett-equipped single-engine caravans. We have one of those too. Uh, get to altitude quicker on less fuel. Sigh. I'll continue to jump the twin otter until they drag me kicking and screaming from its warm embrace. So. Very cool. So is it um, any, I know that it's part of the family of the, the beaver. Nice beaver. Um, <laughs> but the beaver is smaller, right? There, it is. There, well, and the beaver's different. The beaver's the one with the radial engine, correct? Yeah. Um, there's a single otter. Um, the twin otter is slightly different size and dimension wise. Okay. Shall I play a little bit of the video? Please. It says Twin Otter Canada, DH Canada. I have a shirt that looks a lot like that. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. All right. It's a landing somewhere. We're looking at all kinds of different things. It's hard to describe what we're they're, looking they're, at. They were doing, a, they were doing Go, an overview Steph. of the PT-6 engine. And they're singing. You can probably hear the singing. I can't talk over that. Okay.
So, anyway, you should really watch the video. It's very cleverly done, I think, and catchy. Yeah. Now this and if you know nothing about the Twin Otter, you will be in love with the aircraft after you watch this video as well, I think. And it perfectly kind of captures and sums up how those of us who have, fly, have flown this aircraft feel about it. I'm imagining that uh, this female pilot singing mm-hmm. uh, is exactly the way you'd sound if you, if you sang first. No, she's much better than me. Nah, I don't sing. I, I, don't, yeah. I refuse. Her voice is fantastic. But there's actually a lot of um, information packed into this song, too. So if you want to know more about the aircraft. All right. Or you could just... Call Steph and she'll let you know all the stuff. I'll tell you all about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. All right. I don't know. I'll have to go back and watch it again. I watched it a couple times the first go around. I need. Yeah, that was the first time that I've seen it and I'll have to watch the whole thing myself. But it will be in the show notes for all of you, all of yous out there who are uh, watching the show. All right. 16. I think we should um, go to 16. (laughs) Oh shoot! They hear they hear Liz telling me what to do. Uh, okay. Uh, hey, Doctor Staff and crew. This is from Oliver. You mentioned that something as narrow as CPR could be helpful to the crew. My employer offers CPR courses, and I'm enrolled in an upcoming one. But I am certainly not a medical professional. Would you recommend that someone with CPR certification, but no other medical training make themselves known to the crew if a request for medical professionals is made. I certainly would not want to waste the crew's time in such a situation. Again, that's from Oliver. So, Oliver, that's a really good question. I think it really depends a lot on what the nature of the medical emergency is. Um, and sometimes that's hard to know right off the bat. You'll just the, I'm sure anyone who's been on an aircraft where there's been a request for medical professionals to volunteer their uh, time and attention. A lot of times it's not something that's necessarily a life or death emergency, but is is a medical question per se. Um, I've responded to things as varied as um, a pediatric patient with a sinus block, for which CPR really would didn't have any use or need. <laughs> Did a slip your arm? No. <laughs> on your on your, your on your sin, on your yeah. maxillary sinuses, like just tap it, it'll be fine. It'll get out. Get the, get the snot out of there. Stay in a line. Um, Stay in a line. <laughs> <laughs> just take the CPR right? course. Yeah, you got it. You okay. got it. You got it. Um, to someone who at first they thought maybe had a seizure, but it wasn't really a seizure. They probably just. Uh, kind of hypoglycemic from not having eaten anything all day and perhaps had one too many beverages in the bar before boarding the aircraft and got a little lightheaded and passed out um, to an actual cardiac arrest. Um, in which case, um, yes, if, if that is happening and you know, if you are, if you have taken a course and are proficient in doing chest compressions and other CPR, basic CPR tasks, your assistance would be very helpful because um, anyone who has ever done actual CPR knows that it is very physically exhausting and you need people to swap out that role pretty quick, pretty often, you know, two minutes or less of doing that activity because you'll become fatigued and the CPR will become much less effective. So if you can ascertain that something like that is happening or may happen or is in progress, I would definitely make yourself known to the crew and the um, personnel who have um, already responded. 
Um, but if they're just calling for a medical professional, I, I don't know that it would be necessary to jump up out of your seat until you know a little bit more about what's going on, potentially. Well, our live audience, uh, Merle, beat me to it. Um, he's, he says, aren't flight attendants required to know CPR? And uh, I'm assuming it's true with all the airlines out there, but I know for a fact that at ACME, all of our flight attendants are fully CPR certified. So in this case, I'm not, I'm well, not sure. Here's, the, here's uh, my here's my take on it. Okay. Um, because <laughs> anyone who's attended to a real world um, true cardiac arrest event where CPR is in progress knows that it doesn't ever go nearly as smoothly as what is depicted in um, training videos. It's it, it can be quite chaotic. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of um, it depends on how many people are there who's attended to the the call for help. So um, one consideration is space availability. You know, if this is happening on a narrow body aircraft where there's not a lot of room, you may physically not be able to get that many people in there to swap out and do things. Um, if it's if there's a lot of space and, um, you know, there's there's CPR in progress. And in my mind, the more people who can actually do chest compressions, the better. And you want to swap those people out every two minutes or less as soon as they start to get fatigued, because the quality of CPR and uh, the chest compressions is just going to be that much better. Um, and then give people as much time to rest as they need before they jump in to, to go again. So and that can be as many as, you know, four or five, six people in some cases I've seen. Okay. And it, it may depend on what... <clears throat> you know, the, the crew needs as well. If they say, if you respond and they say, we've got medical professionals and people who are part of staff and we don't need more people right now, don't take it personally. It just means that sometimes there's an element of crowd control mm -hmm. that happens as well. And sometimes more people are not necessarily more helpful depending on the situation. And it's nothing to do with your qualifications necessarily. And I apologize because when I read that, I, what I heard or what I saw him asking was, should he like mention it like as he's boarding? Oh, by the way, I'm just wanting to let oh, you no, know. Oh, no, 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 no. I know. I realize a, now yeah, I went back yeah, yeah. and looked at it and went, oh, no, I didn't read that right. Yeah. Um, so I agree with Steph yeah. that, uh, you know, you might yeah, want, if, if when CPR it's going is in, on, you might if want. If CPR to. is in progress and you know CPR and have been trained, by all means, yeah. make it known that you can do chest compressions and no CPR. Right. I because it's likely that you will be, well, and it may free up somebody else who has more advanced qualifications <laughs> to do something different. You know, mm -hmm. so if there's if there's one doctor that's responded and flight attendants, um, you know, the, the priority is doing um, the high quality CPR. But if someone else can jump in and do the chest compression part of it, um, you know, that gives that physician time to go through the medical kit and, you know, potentially use um, more advanced care. Yep. Mm -hmm. so. OK, we're going to wrap up with number 19. All right. Number 19 we're heading to now. This is from our. Good friend, and he's kind of crazy, actually, uh, in a good way. Uh, Larry Geezer, he calls himself, uh, in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I consider him a, one of my good friends. Uh, Larry sends, is, uh, does anyone on the crew need one of these? Are we looking at it? Um, <laughs> what are we looking at here? Well, so we were looking at a, um, a noise-canceling toilet. <laughs> now... <laughs> And I could see many, many – when I go into public bathrooms, especially in the airport, I'm thinking this is definitely something that's needed because so, honestly – So I have, a, I have a quick question before we go into too yeah. much detail on this. 
Have you guys have you been to Japan and used a public toilet like in a mall or something? No, I have so, been to Japan, but I don't. I have not been in a public. The bathroom. the toilets there are, are often Holes? even in public places. No, uh, like very fancy bidets. Oh, and that, a lot of times they have the they extremes have, there. They, they either have, have the fancy bidets or just or a, a hole. hole. You know, it's one or the other. <laughs> but if you're like in a high high end mall or something, and a lot of these bidets like play sounds and music, like so while you're you know. Pooping. Whatever physiologic function is occurring, <laughs> you can choose to have like a waterfall playing or maybe a gentle song. Like, so does it that mask? No, I will. I was just about to say that does not actually mask the physiologic <laughs> functions. It just adds another layer of noise. So I'm very interested in this noise canceling toilet because I think you could combine the functionality of the bidet with the functionality of the Bose. They noise have something here. It's a it's a Bose. Um, <laughs> Headset, uh, what do ear, you call that? Ear, cup, ear, cup, yeah, ear, cup, ear, ear cup. cup thing. Uh, well, very much like one, the one that I have in my bag, and I think Steph has one. I have them uh, the as A20s, well, an A twenty. Yeah, um, yeah I, I like the idea. It looks like a nice, comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so a nice, nice soft seat. seat. I've, I'm pretty sure you Cleaning can combine. Might them. be an issue. <laughs> yeah, could it be. might. It might. <laughs> Depends on how porous that material is, you know. Yeah, and how I much of a blowout you're going to have. A lot of nook. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and lordy, lordy, have I heard some things in the bathroom. If it's bad enough that you're looking for that, actively looking for that noise-canceling toilet, you might want to spend some time uh, sanitizing. Uh, I, I am serious. I, and it's not only the, the physiological noises of the asphincter, um, but... Says what? The um, <laughs> as Pinter says, what? Thank um, you. Uh, the uh, the fact that people are like vocalizing a lot sometimes. <laughs> it's like like in, like in a like grunting and relieving. yeah, grunting like making. No- I, I I want to, honestly. I I don't know. I probably do this before I retire. I'm gonna like knock on the thing. I said, you know, you really should go see a doctor. <laughs> Or do you like, understand? Do you know that that like everybody in here can helpful. hear you like making all this noise? Apparently, you don't care. You can be like, I'm I'm not a doctor, Shingles but I've doesn't heard fiber. You know. <laughs> yeah. Shingles does not care. And uh, yeah, it's right here. I think. No, no, no. Okay, I can't find it. <laughs> yeah, Shingles doesn't care. Ah, there it is. <laughs> uh, but anywho. Um, well, thanks, Larry. That was a good one. That was a yes, good one, Larry. And, it and, definitely and we needed a little bit needed. of a laugh at the we end did. of the day today. So yes. I'm glad we were able to. Uh, it's been a crappy day, and that's a perfect uh, perfect picture for it. Perfect cartoon. Cra- uh, that was a crapper picture there. Yeah. Well, this whole thing is going into the crapper. And uh, you might want to just stay tuned for uh, parts two and three. Well, part two tomorrow, uh, Friday. But again, you don't care, and neither does Jingles. Jingles doesn't care. Uh, but uh, we're going to have um, uh, Captain Nick and uh, Liz Piper and Captain Jeff and uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, Nick Camacho. Macho Man, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Uh, tomorrow. And then uh, we do have a plane tail, by the way, uh, yep. up mm-hmm. for uh, running tomorrow. And then uh, on a Sunday evening, uh, it's going to be uh, Miami Rick and Liz and myself and whoever on the crew ends up uh, being available to show up as well. So, nothing better to do. Nothing, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Um, it was thanks to the brave souls in the chat room that turned up for this mess. Yeah, thank I mean, you. This, you are yep. the unsung heroes of this mm-hmm. train wreck. Yes, tonight. very good, very thank good. You thank you very much. Bravo to you. 
And we look forward to seeing you again on uh, the next part of this hot mess. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening, it will be seamless. Mm. Oh, like yeah. There is never even be, a break. You won't even know. I mean, it will like, whoa, what happened? There are new people, new voices that I'm hearing now. No, it won't be seamless at all. It will be horrible. And uh, <laughs> But that's just the way. There's the new tagline to the new toilet when seat it's, there. Uh, <laughs> Thar she bows. You can count on bows. I like that. This is Matt must be a marketing guy. Marketing guy, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think you should sell that to bows now. Oh, did you notice at the beginning in the uh, intro with Radio Roger? I had not listened to it. How he did his little uh, his little where where your location was. I know. Yeah, Yeah, it was like a little. It was poetry. It almost made a tear come from my it was it was moving it was very moving it was very moving speaking Speaking of of toilets (laughs) (laughs) all right that's enough from us thank you everybody we'll see you again soon very soon Bye. bye hey look at that also joining me today from his studio in Hartford, Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Lovely to see you again. What's just happened to Steph? She's just disappeared. What's that? What's happened to Steph? She's just disappeared. Yeah, I know. She was here, and then she finally just tired of this whole oh, thing right. and decided, okay. forget. Oh, wow. Okay, so what we're doing here, we're on day two. I kind of explained it at the, the start of the show. Uh, we're on day two of a three-day recording, a three-part <laughs> recording marathon. of 559, the hot mess, or in a hot mess. And uh, and we're in the midst of this hot mess, and uh, now we're featuring our... Uh, Old pilot, plane tail uh, master, and curmudgeon. Uh, curmudgeon. Yes, the old curmudgeon, Captain Nick. How are how are you, sir? Thanks for joining us. I, I'm very curmudgeonly. Thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting about some of these incidents. Okay. Well, let's do that. And do we need to play this new sounder again, Liz? You think? I don't think so. No. I okay. Well, I'll play a little bit of you, it. But... Oh. Okay, that's enough. All right. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> We're trying to squeeze in as much as we can. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, start off in the news segment with uh, this. Oh, shoot. I meant <laughs> I asked the question in the before we started the recording <laughs> if I needed to load any videos and then I forgot to follow through with it. Uh, I do need to load a video. So let me uh, go over here to present and video file and uh this is in boston isn't it yes open okay Boston. okay um it's uploading and uh do i need to do any context here let's see this is from um five abc5 wcvb in boston the FAA is investigating a close call between a Learjet and a JetBlue flight Monday night at Boston Logan International Airport. According to a preliminary review, the pilot of a Learjet 60 took off without clearance while JetBlue flight 206 was preparing to land on an intersecting runway. So we will go ahead and uh, 
add this to the stream and hit play. And here it goes. This is from Bass Aviation, an awesome YouTube channel, Real Aviation Communications. Here we go. We're watching the bird's eye view of the uh, Boston Logan International Airport in Boston. Runway 9, line up and wait, traffic line across the runway. Okay, Hopjet 280, she's just told him line up and wait, runway 9. And uh, the landing runways appear to be uh, the fours, the four left and four right. So this is a intersecting runway. And so we're seeing the Hopjet uh, Learjet yep. rolling right in front of the runway 9 intersection. Ouch. And JetBlue has just been instructed to go around. They were on short final on four right. And there's Did another. 65, runway heading, maintain 3000. Runway heading up to, uh, sorry, sitting on the altitude? Yeah. 3000. Startle 3, effect. What? 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 What's going on yeah. here? Why do we have to go around? Uh, there's a, also an airplane landing on two, four left. Uh, the Hopjet, Learjet, they're just. Tower Delta 1090 is on the ILS. Boom, ba -dum, boom, They're just. Yeah. Oblivious. Oblivious. Me, Maintain not me. Must have been some other hot jet. Maintain 4,000. I'm sorry, climb maintain 4,000. Maintain 4,000. Jet 206. Hopjet 280, contact the today. Oh, Hopjet. Oh, so cute. Hopjet. Yeah. Hop out the way, Hopjet. Now, what's interesting. Contact departure 133.0, turn right heading 090. That's right, heading 090 and 133.0, uh, Okay, I'm going to stop it right there. Well, I thought it was. Here we go. Um, Hopajet uh, 280, monitor tower 132. I think that was a different Hopajet flight, maybe. Okay. Was that the same one? I think it was a Hopajet that. that yeah. That's the problem. Oh, I think I just uh, did something. I, I, re, I rewound the thing. Hobbitjet 280. Yeah I, yeah, I was interested to see actually which um, taxiway the Hobbitjet had used to get onto the runway. Uh, they use, okay, and I'll use back it up. The one um, that goes right to the end, I think. Yes, it does. Yeah, which is, which is correct. So, yeah. Uh, um, let's see. I'm trying to find it. Uh, okay, hit play a little bit here, and yeah, it's the yeah. one that basically takes it right to the yeah, end. Yeah, that's, that's the correct turn on. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what happened here is, um, and, and there are a lot of factors that could uh, cause something like this to happen. Um, you're, there are a lot of checklists that were running uh, right before we approach a runway and about to take the runway for takeoff. Um there could be other distractions. I don't know. The Hoppa jet flight, they may have had passengers that um, may have been talking to them or they may have been talking to the passengers and that was a distraction. I don't know. You know, we don't have a cockpit voice recorder uh, transcript or anything. Um, but uh, they told them to line up and wait. And and uh, they did, but they didn't wait. They and they read, yeah, they read very long. Yeah, they didn't wait very long. <laughs> it was a misunderstanding. I'm bored with this. I'm yeah. going to go. So they lined up and uh, didn't wait, and they they rolled for takeoff. And sometimes, if you if you're doing a lot of flying, you're fatigued, and you're just like thinking, I, I'm pretty sure we were clear for takeoff. And then 
maybe the other pilot was going like, I don't know if we're not, but okay. Yeah. So, uh, it's uh, yeah, not the I first time this has happened. And pretty it's not generous, gonna... Jeff. Yeah, I know. I know. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah. You'd be you the are, bad but, cop. You know, you're being very good for them. <laughs> but, I mean, we've been looking at incidents um, where we had potential uh, um, collisions on the runway, uh, a number of them recently, and this is just one to add to the list. And mm -hmm. how long do we have to wait before someone actually um, bombs into another aircraft and there's a massive loss of life? Yeah. Um, it, you... It, Whenever you're departing from runways that intersect, you have got to be so careful. I mean, you've got to be careful anyway because aircraft can taxi across your runway if they're trying to get to the other side of the airfield. And all these um, hot spots you see on your airport diagrams are there for a damn good reason. And uh, this is one, one aspect of the flight where you can't really afford to be uh, operating a bit below par, you know, because... Yeah, it's, it's just so vital that you get your clearances right and that you uh, depart in a safe manner um, because uh, we we know what's going to happen uh, uh, if you don't get it right. And, you know, we saw the effect at Tenerife, the world's worst uh, aviation disaster. Uh, and we, ju we just don't want another one. But if, you, if keep, people keep... Um, you know, making these errors, it's going to happen. And I'm, you know, we, we're all predicting it now. We're all worried about it. Mm -hmm. um, the FAA is worried about it. They they want everyone to concentrate on many aspects of aviation, but in particular this problem, because uh, th I, I'm sure they are c as concerned as we are that something's going to go drastically wrong before long. Yeah. And you do wonder as you're, and I know that you do this uh, or you did this when you were a professional airline pilot. And I do every time I take a runway is I look at the final for the runway and I say, final is clear. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's old school, but it's absolutely yeah. necessary. Nowadays, we've also got TCAS. We turn the TCAS on well before we get onto the runway so that the symbology of aircraft making approaches shows up. Uh, and it is so you don't even you need to have a good view out of the cockpit. You can watch the aircraft coming in on your TCAS and you can go, well, that guy seems to be landing on the runway that we're about to cross. Mm -hmm. Does this look right to you? Uh, and this is part and parcel of, of what we should be doing, as, nat as natural as any other type of airmanship you'd like to talk about. Yep. Mistakes are made, but the thing that would have prevented it or trapped it, or as we like to say, is the fact just looking out the window and saying, yeah, yeah that guy yeah. looks like he's landing on this runway we're about to cross and maybe we and should very luckily ask. the air trafficker uh hats off to her who mm -hmm. was looking out of the window and send him around mm -hmm. um because she was the instigator of the uh, issue was she not or did well the jet blue spot it before she did I'm, i uh, oh yeah when you say instigator you mean the one that uh, actually directed the go i think yeah i think she did yeah if, if i yeah. remember correctly i mean I've, I've no doubt the jet blue would have uh spotted it mm -hmm. as it you know, lurched in front of them pretty hard to miss an airplane going across your runway and it's quite close to the threshold mm -hmm. so uh, hopefully they would have uh, caught it themselves but mm -hmm. uh, um, no the uh, trafficker did a good job i thought yeah now we're relying of course on the video um simulation of where, where the airplanes were and all that kind of stuff and uh you know, it, it may, that may be a little bit different in, in real life in this incident. Um, 
but maybe the JetBlue people were going, whoa, this is close, but it looks like it's going to work out. And then for the tower controller, it was probably like, yeah, this is too close for comfort. Let's be safe. Let's send them around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing I'm a little bit, bit disappointed about is that she didn't say, uh, we have a, uh, a possible uh, pilot deviation. Uh, please let me know yes. when you're ready to copy down this. <laughs> All these deviant pilots. I know. Yeah. There's a question in the chat room, Jeff. Oh, chat room question from November Echo Whiskey. Can a pilot readily turn off TCAS warnings for taxi and lineup? I would imagine they are not blaring when you're on the ground. Is that correct? The, yeah, the TCAS 2 uh, system software does have provisions for um, below, I forgot, below, a, well, below 1,000 feet, uh, it stops doing the, uh, the re resolution advi advisories or RAs. Um, and I believe at below a certain altitude, or if it's sensing that an airplane is on the ground, it will, it will, should not give you a traffic advisory because that's a nuisance because there are so many, especially these big airports like Atlanta, there are a lot of airplanes out there taxiing around that have their TCAS, um, or their, uh, mode C on, uh, displaying their information. And, uh, that would be, you know, your, your TCAS would be going off like crazy, uh, giving you traffic advisories of all these airplanes that are pretty close. So, uh, yeah, there is some filtering going on. And, uh, yeah, so, it's a pretty clever system. Yeah. It knows you're on the ground, so it inhibits a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can still see the symbols, which is mm -hmm. just the same as kind of looking out the window and yep. uh, what looking for airplanes. But, it's great uh, for your you know, SA, situational It is. Fantastic. Yeah. Good question. Thank you, uh, November Echo Whiskey. And uh, just to, just to clarify that uh, we need to tell November Echo Whiskey, we're, you're not watching the Opposing Bases uh, podcast. This is <laughs> yeah. Airline Pilot yes. Guy. And we, act, yeah. we actually use yeah. real names here if you want. That's you know. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no aliases. I was just going to uh, bring to your attention, you mm -hmm. probably read it already, the final sentence in this piece, oh. Jeff. Due to concerns, the FAA said it would form a safety team to review the U.S. aviation system. A safety summit will be held in March, January, February, March. That's yeah, this next month, month or this month to yeah. find additional measures to ensure aviation safety. So I, th I think they've well and truly picked up yep. on this trend, and I'm hoping they will come up with uh, something that will put an end to it. At least, you know, yep, give us some protection. I agree. I agree. Okay. Um, Next item is uh, this from NPR.org. A man is charged for allegedly trying to bring explosives in his suitcase on a flight. Good Lord. Yes. Uh, Allentown, PA, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania man faces federal criminal, criminal charges after he checked in a suitcase with an explosive device hidden in the lining on a flight to Florida, authorities said Wednesday. Mark Muffley... Uh, 40 years old, is charged with possessing an explosive in an airport or possessing or attempting to place an explosive or incendiary device on an aircraft, according to a criminal complaint. Prosecutors allege that the material was found in a suitcase Muffley had checked in Monday at Lehigh Valley International Airport uh, to Allegiant Air Flight 201, which was bound for Orlando Sanford International Airport in Florida. After an alert during security screening, the bag was examined and found hidden in the lining was a circular compound 
about three inches in diameter encased in a wax-like paper and clear plastic wrap. An FBI bomb technician x-rayed the compound and concluded that it contained a granular powder uh, consistent with a commercial-grade firework and suspected to be a mixture of flash powder and the dark granulars that are used in commercial-grade fireworks. Attached to it was a quick fuse, similar to a candle wick, apparently part of the original manufacturer of the compound, as well as a hobby fuse that burns more slowly and appeared to have been added after the manufacturer, authorities said. They also concluded that the black powder and flash powder are susceptible to, to ignite from heat and friction and posed a significant risk to the aircraft and passengers. The baggage also contained a can of butane, a lighter, a pipe with a white powder residue, a wireless drill with cordless batteries, and two GFCI outlets taped together with black tape. Uh, and, and this article says, mm. GFCI outlets are a type of circuit breaker. Okay, well, uh, let me share something here. Um, I think many people are familiar with GFCI uh, uh, outlets. And, uh, are they the share. ones in your bathroom? Yes, they are, Liz. They're, they are near bathrooms for sure. Here we go. Share and share. Like that. That is a uh, G. Ground Fault Circuit Interrupter, GFCI. And it's basically an electrical outlet that we use here in the U.S. and in Canada. You have the same kind of setup, right, Liz? Yes, sir. Yep. And, yep. yeah, it, so it does have a circuit breaker. If it senses a, um, uh, a fault uh, that would make you the ground, um, it will interrupt that and, uh, and, and cut the power off to the, the circuit so you don't get electrocuted. So, yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to I'm trying to put this together in my head. Uh, the one I'm confused about is the wireless drill. Does that mean you can control it with your phone um, <laughs> with cordless batteries? Wireless. Uh, so yeah, what's a I wireless understand drill? it was a battery driven drill, but yeah. why is it a wireless drill? Hmm. I don't know, I understand yeah, that. that doesn't make sense. I think somebody miss. They they added yeah, cordless drill. Yeah, maybe a cord. Yeah, right? Liz is saying cordless drill, probably not. Yeah, wireless. wireless drill with cordless batteries. Yeah, yeah I never control uh, a drill with a. Oh, there's an app for that apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Smart um, drill. So it seems a slightly odd collection, and they, obviously the can of butane is going to be pretty dangerous if the black powder goes off. Um, uh, the lighter. Well, uh, uh, was he trying to actually bring the airplane down, or was he? Going to use it for some other nefarious reason when he got to his destination, I wonder. Don't know. No. Do not know. Yeah, so I, was... I looked at his picture uh -huh. and I thought, there, there's a man I'd want to x-ray his back. <laughs> oh, come on. That looks like Nick Camacho. He looks like yeah, an honest exactly. guy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wait. Exactly my Why point. is Nick Camacho not with us today? Hmm. <laughs> he did say he was uh, visiting um, Allentown, Pennsylvania, didn't he? Oh, there you go. Using an alias, apparently. Does look a bit like him. So uh, we're going to call Nick now Muffley. Same hat, <laughs> same beard. Okay, so author that muff on it. Uh, authorities said Muffley was paged over the airport's public address system, and shortly thereafter, he was seen leaving the airport. <laughs> yes, <laughs> running from the airport. Suspicious. He was traced to a Lansford address where he was arrested by the FBI late Monday night. 
Officials say uh, he remains in custody pending a probable cause hearing and detention hearing Thursday at 1.30 p.m. in Allentown, which was yesterday, with Muffley attending via video conference. A message was left Wednesday for Muffley's federal public defender, Timothy Wright, but apparently they hadn't gotten hadn't gotten back to him yet. No, but I mean, it, it is a worry. I have to say, uh, black powder is not a, a usually efficient explosive mm-hmm. if you want to bring an airplane down, but it could easily cause a big fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, For like as a we know, distraction or diversion. Or yeah, something. yeah, mm-hmm. but a, a fire in a cargo hold can be disastrous. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not the sort of thing you really want to have floating around uh, in someone's baggage. Well, view from the flight deck and our live audience says maybe early preparation for July 4th. I don't yeah. know. Planning ahead. Yeah. Although maybe plan he was ahead. planning for March 4th because that's uh, tomorrow. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. Let's uh, continue on. Let's see if I can stop, hide, and stop sharing the window. And go over here. Feedback from... Wait a minute, which one are we on, Liz? It's not feedback, it's news. And you're Man, got I don't know where I am. One, one C. Thank you. You've got the uh, United <laughs> Airlines. This is going to be the mask. I'm thing. a little disoriented. Okay, here we go. You um, have control. Don't be, no, don't do be crossing any runways. <laughs> Nick, you have the aircraft. You have the airplane. Okay. Um, oh, another video. Uh, here is uh, this from... YouTube, the um, video, and uh, it's from uh, Bass Aviation, I believe, I, I or is believe that Jeff or, Nielsen? I see um, ATC. Let's see. We'll find out when I play the video. But yes, I did put this in the uh, news uh, segment, Liz, uh, because I thought it was uh, something interesting to cover and talk about. So let's uh, go over here and let me uh, add the stream and start playing from Bass Aviation. Our favorite. And here we go. We're seeing some radar Mark, depictions. Second in twelve hundred climbing via the uh zoo three. And twenty six sixty four silk out of parts for contact. Speed your discretion. Yeah, twenty six sixty four. Just taking off from San Diego. United seven thirty seven dash eight max. Oh, that's the problem. Performing uh, flight UAL 2664 from San Diego to Newark. Uh, United 2664, declaring emergency. We have a uh, laptop on fire in the aircraft. We need to return. Uh-oh. Laptop okay, on fire. 64, SoCal approach. Roger. And uh, I'm sorry, what do you have on board, you said? Yeah, we have a laptop on fire in the back. We need to return to the airport. 664, Roger. You want to land 27 or you want to get in immediately to Niner? No, 27. Okay, heading 270, descent upon discretion maintained. Question heading 0, 9 or 0, 0, 9 or 0. And descend and maintain 5,000. The other 270. 090, 5,000, United 2664. Okay. United 2664, uh, if you get a second, let me know how many people you have on board. And people, when you're on a frequency, listen before you start talking. Hmm. 127 souls on board, copy. Good morning, Park Experience 260 is at a 1500. Climb via the 6th. Experience 260, so good to Park Radar contact. 
Number six Charlie Alpha for Cedric Lugia. And, uh, so this is other air traffic control going on. A lot of airplanes in Southern Direct California. Direct Lugia, Direct Lugia, Charlie Alpha. At 2664, the uh, field is at uh, 9 o'clock and 5 miles. If you want the visual, let me know. If you want an instrument approach, I can do that too. United 2664, descent policy discretion, maintain 4,000. Must be busy in the cockpit at United, United 2664. So approach, reply, receive, maintain 4,000, heading uh, 060. Now, what may happen, I'm pausing the uh, video right now. What may be happening here is they're busy, busy doing checklists, probably talking with the flight attendant to figure out what's going on with the laptop fire in the back. And it's also possible that they might not have their interphone uh, panel correctly configured to communicate with air traffic control. Oh, I'll also mention that uh, those of you who are familiar with San Diego, it's beautiful, it's right on the water. However, not very far to the east of San Diego are mountains, uh, terrain that rises up pretty rapidly. 2664, acknowledge with an ident, and if you feel, see the field at uh, 8 o'clock and 7 miles, I want the visual, you're clear for the visual 27. Uh, Still no response. And approach accident. Three Alpha Hotel, 5,000. That's the three Alpha Hotel, so Cleared uh, into the Bravo, advising you have Romeo. Cleared into the Bravo, uh, unab unable to get Romeo, negative uh, NDA. United 2664, heading towards uh, higher terrain, turn to the north if you can. At 2664, I understand uh, you might be on mask there. I cannot hear you. Uh, CGS, you turn north, and you are clear for the visual to San Diego at any time. He's trying to figure out his At 2664, interphone. weak, barely readable. Turn left, heading 360. 2664, do you see San Diego? Are you on the visual approach? Yeah, 2664, Roger. United 2664, wind calm, cleared to land, runway 27. Clear to land, 27, United 2664, Fairways 260, contact, uh, disregard. Yeah, 26, 29, 2664, just make sure you have crash fire rescue available at the end of the runway, please. Yeah, 2664, affirmative. Yeah, 2664, contact Lindbergh Tower, 118.3, once again, you're cleared to land. Hmm. Fairwings 260, contact LA Center, 132.85, good morning. That's uh, 13285 for Fairwings 260. United 2664, Liberty Tower, I believe that's you, runway 27, clear to land. United 2664, uh, just be advised that they copy landing clear. Okay, then get on the ground. United 2664, uh, continue on the runway, and when able, just uh, hold position. Arms requesting that you uh, hold on the runway. 
And you're at 26. Well, just when you get in a minute, you guys are coming through. I feel like it's a speaker. I'm not the headset. Okay. And I got you loud and clear now. Okay, we're going to come to the stop here at the end of the runway here and send the trucks over. The flight attendants have verified that the fire is out, but we still want them to come over because of hot brakes. You know, 2664, copy fire's out, but now you got hot brakes. The, uh, they're responding now. Okay, thanks. Yeah, we're just going to hold position here. You know, 2664, roger that. Okay, four people were taken to hospital. Okay, we're going to stop the uh, video. Now, one of the reasons why I wanted to cover this one is that it can get, anytime you have smoke and fumes event or a rapid decompression or anytime you need to put the oxygen mask on, and it's the reason why we practice it just about every time we go to the simulator and, or at least simulate it, is that it's very confusing and you got to make sure that you know exactly how to set up your interphone panel so you can communicate with the other pilot and also with the flight attendants and also with air traffic control. And apparently one of the pilots had it, um, and I don't know which one, and the other one did not. And so there was some confusion there, um, especially with air traffic control saying, look, I can, at least you could hear him, but it wasn't like a normal, uh, clear transmission that they were getting from the pilot that was having an issue with the, uh, the mask, but it's very disorienting, especially, and I've never, thankfully never had to deal with this in real life. And I hope that I can get through my career without ever having to deal with this. But when you are in a situation, I've heard that you actually have smoke in the cockpit and it's hard to see and it's hard to breathe and you're trying to communicate with your oxygen mask. It's very, very difficult. And so our bold face at least on all the jets that I've flown for Acme is in this kind of a situation, oxygen masks on 100%, crew communications establish. And the reason why, you know, obviously putting it on and put, turning to 100% is very important, right? You need to have that pure oxygen uh, that you're breathing and no smoke. But the only, the other thing that you want is the crew communications and establishing the communications. That's the step I think that one of them kind of fell a little bit short on. And and I don't blame them. And, you know, I've never, as I said, I've never been in this situation myself, Captain Nick. I don't know if you have or not, but I have simulated it in the, in the simulator. And it even in the simulator is extremely confusing. And they really don't have any smoke, you know, being blown in there and everything else just to make matters worse. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly right, Jeff. Um, I don't know what the Boeing setup is like in the Airbus. Uh, it's an in integral uh, visor and oxygen mask. And the act of pulling it out of the box to stick it on your face uh, turns uh, the microphone um, on in the uh, mask so that when you get it on, it's fine. But, um, of course, you... You, we still have to use um, the interphone setting so that we communicate. Now, in an Airbus, because of the lovely quiet cockpits, um, generally speaking, uh, we never use the headsets to communicate with each other. We, uh, we just talk, and we have uh, the headsets off one ear so mm -hmm. that we can hear what the other guy is saying, and we only listen in through the other ear, um, so or through the loudspeakers. Uh, so the difference for us is when you get the mask on, you in order to speak to the guy beside you, you're now going to have to hold down the switch, the interphone switch, which is uh, just like the uh, ra radio transmit switch, just moves in the opposite direction. 
and uh, you, you so it's hold to talk in fact i think it clicks on and you have to remember to click it off when you finish talking mm. because the noise of the oxygen rushing through past the microphone is absolutely deafening and if you forget to turn your interphone off uh the other guy's gonna be gonna get all this amplified <laughs> noise and he's yeah he's not gonna be able to understand where this right. going on so uh, that, that that's one of the differences and the other thing for us is that um, once you have decided it's safe to fly without the mask, uh, when you take the mask off and toss it on the side console, uh, you probably haven't got time to carefully wrap it and restow it. You have to remember to reach into the box where it was stowed and you have to flick a little tag which turns off the microphone in the mask and allows you to use your normal headset microphone. Again, and that's something that people often forget. They, they they think they've got a damn failure of their headset. Now they haven't. They've just left it set to mm -hmm. um, to oxygen mask rather than the microphones. Yeah. So on the L ten eleven, the seven twenty seven, Mad Dog, and the current airplane that I'm flying, uh, they all are like that as well. We don't. Um, we just you know communicate. We don't communicate via the interphone. We communicate, you know, with one of our ear ear cups slightly off the ear and we just talk in normal language normally but when you get as captain nick just mentioned once you have the full face mask on which is i'm sure what they i think all airplanes now have the full face mask and integrated oxygen mask uh setup uh yeah you have to communicate through that microphone in the mask and it, it's very confusing if you're not used to doing it yeah, practice makes perfect. So we usually get fairly regular practice in the sims. Uh, if not every sim, at least every other sim, you've got the auction mask on for one reason or another. So right. you do kind of get the hang of it. And a lot of guys will just play with it during the flight sometimes, have a bit of a whiff of oxygen, wake themselves up perhaps, but more importantly, just to remind themselves how the controls work. Yeah. And the other thing that's... Um it used to be in the old days, like when I was flying the L-1011 and uh, 727 before the full face mask setup, which is which is really optimum if you are, are in a real smoke and fume situation. But um, just if you're just hanging the the mask, um, it's it's not just a fact or a matter of just taking it off your head and like hanging it up. And it's like very simple. The full face mask setups that we have now, at least the way they are in my airplane, the box that you have to put it in, you have to be, I, it's like, um, I guess the masters of uh, Cuban cigars and rolling cigars, like really super tight. <laughs> is you have to be like, have that kind of skill to roll the thing up to make it fit back in that little box. I'm not sure yes. how they yeah, not did it. They're the originally. easiest thing to put away. No, you don't want to, you do not want to pull that thing out unless you absolutely have to. So when we do our oxygen mask tests, uh, we, we do, um, you know, have uh, a, a way of determining whether or not that mask, I mean, the uh, microphone in the mask is actually working without actually having to pull the thing out, which is, you know. Yeah, we do the same thing. We we select it and then uh, do a little puff of oxygen to double check that the um, pressure oxygen works. And uh, you can also hear it coming through the loudspeakers when you do that. So it tests the microphone as well. Yeah, the only thing that we didn't have, um, all the airplanes that I've flown compared to what you talked about, what like latching it on and latching it off, it was it was not that kind of a setup. So 
that's the only difference that I could tell well, from the view way for the used. flight deck's going to be uh, in the sim this month, including an emergency descent. So, oh boy, you'll you be able to find out what the uh, A220. Uh, Good for you. It's like. going to be so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's one bit of uh, aviation uh, that I don't uh, miss at all. <laughs> I will not ever miss that either. <laughs> okay. Excellent. All right. But I think they did a good job. Uh, you know, fire on an airplane is uh, is, is critical, and uh, they handled it pretty well and got it on the ground, and nobody uh, was – well, I guess there were four passengers injured possibly to – due to smoke inhalation i'm guessing yeah i would i would guess i'd hope they weren't burnt because uh we haven't actually had that many of uh, laptop fires and battery fires recently touch wood um because we did have a rash of them uh when lithium-ion batteries started to be widely used i think the construction and the safety features that uh, most electronic devices now have probably improved over the years uh, so which is great um, but, uh, yeah, you still get the odd ones, so we still have to be careful out there. Yep. Yes, we do. All right, moving on to the next item, another video. This is um, the uh, narrative here from AviationHerald.com. Um, a SkyWest Embraer ERJ-175 on behalf of United Registration 619 Uniform X-Ray performing flight 5326 from Burbank, California to San Francisco, California, have been cleared to line up on runway 33, then waited in position for about two minutes. A Mesa Airlines Canadair CRJ-900 on behalf of American Airlines, registration 954 Lima Romeo, performing flight 5826 from Phoenix to Burbank, California, was on final approach to runway 33, when Tower advised a departure was in position and would take off before them and instructed them to continue. A private aircraft on approach also to runway 33 got too close to the CRJ-900 and was instructed to go around. About two minutes after the 175 had been cleared to line up on runway 33, Tower cleared the aircraft for takeoff and in the same sentence cleared the CRJ-900 to land. The CRJ-900, however, initiated a go-around and was instructed to turn left. The crew reported receiving a TCAS RA. The uh, Embraer 175 was instructed to continue their climb and was later instructed to turn left after the aircraft was clear of the conflict. The Embraer 175 continued to their destination. The CRJ-900 joined a downwind and landed on runway 33 about 12 minutes after the go-around. Okay, so we do have some video, as I mentioned, so let me uh, play that. We'll hear the uh, live ATC audio. Bass Aviation, once again, for the win, Real Aviation Communications. And by the way, I encourage you, dear listener, to visit on YouTube the Bass Aviation uh, YouTube channel. It's awesome. We like them a lot and a lot of hard work being done over there, and uh, we appreciate that. Absolutely. All right, so we have some. Number four seven Charlie, runway two six, clear to land. One bearable exit. Two six, clear to land. Four seven Charlie. Okay. And number four seven Charlie, traffic will hold in position on runway three three. Four seven Charlie. Skies fifty three twenty six, Burbank Tower. Skies fifty three twenty six, rep. Skies fifty three twenty six, turn right onto runway three three, back taxi as necessary. Runway three three, line up away. Turn on to runway 33, back taxi is necessary. Skywest 5326, line up and wait. 
Burbank Tire, show That's a light aircraft. Four seven Charlie, start your crosswind turn now, please. Uh, was that a right crosswind for four seven Charlie? Left crosswind. Left crosswind. Left crosswind. Thank you, four seven Charlie. Burbank Tower, Twin Star seven zero four Alpha, uh, Alpha Bravo over El Monte, looking for a transition to your Okay, it's pretty tight. Air shuttle for DS-26, affirmative runway 33, clear to land. You off the runway yet? No, we're going around. I, I'm just pausing this right now. I think this is what the uh, RH and AG uh, refer to as a squeeze play, trying to get the aircraft cleared for takeoff and run rolling down the runway for takeoff and working out so that the aircraft on final um, is touching down after the what previous airplane. What height is the that's going around? I'm, What's that? It, I can't quite see the display. What height is the aircraft that is just called is going around? I'm not sure. Um, here, let me hit play again and see if we might be able to see it more clearly. Air Shuttle 5826, roger. Climb and maintain uh, 4,000. Fly runway heading. 1,100 or 1,000 feet? What was the altitude? 4,000. I think it got down about 1,000 feet. Okay, in this video, the real silence is not trimmed. So this is real time. Air Shuttle 5826, turn uh, right heading 270. Left 270. Left 270, show 5826. Mm. Where we tower, twin star 704, I'll probably look for a VFR transition to Van Nuys. Stand by. Got Shut something up. going on here. <laughs> That's yeah. right. 1600 feet as the air shuttle going around. And. Guys, 5326, uh, continue on the set. Continue on the SID, Sky 5326. Now, I'm not sure why she said this, because I think the SID is going to take it in the same direction as the person going around. Let's see what happens here. Air Shuttle 5826, continue your climb. Continuing the climb, Air Shuttle 5826. Like, keep climbing, please. We need the separation. So now we're looking at a couple parallel. Air Shuttle 5826, do you have the uh, Embraer Insight 2500 off your right? Negative. We're, we got an RA. We're complying with it. Air Shuttle 5826, roger, turn right 30 degrees. Left 30 degrees. Left turn 30 degrees. Oh, left and right. Confused. Guys, 5326, contact SoCal 120.4. Air 
Okay. Hello. What do you want to do with me here? I'm on the south side of the Number airport. Number Charlie, do you not want to land anymore? Number four seven, Charlie, runway three three, clear to land. Air shuttle fifty eight twenty six, fly heading one nine or zero. Heading one nine or zero, shuttle fifty eight twenty six. Air shuttle fifty eight twenty six, contact SoCal on one two zero point four. Twenty point four, shuttle fifty eight twenty six. Number four, Sierra Charlie one two six zero at nine, gusting to one five one way uh, three three, clear to land. Three three, clear to land four seven, Charlie. Tower Twin Star 704 Alpha Bravo. I know you guys are busy just looking for a VFR transition uh, to the south uh, to Venice. November 704 Alpha Bravo, Burbank Tower, Burbank Altimeter, 29 or 89 or Squad 024. I don't think there's anything else um, significant no, I think that's on the rest yeah. of this video. Um, the uh, the light airplane, uh, that, you know, the, the wind, that's like a 15 knot crosswind. Uh, that seems kind of. Challenging. I think it was originally lined up for the uh, runway 26, which is pretty much into the wind. Um, but uh, because of the traffic being put on the runway for takeoff and the traffic coming in to land on runway 33, um, the tower controller said, yeah, this is not going to work. Let's uh, get this GA traffic um, out of the way and set up for uh, landing on 33. But the uh, the critical thing here is I don't know if the aircraft on the runway just took too long you know we've talked we've had that situation recently uh or what but uh again a squeeze play was attempted and it just didn't work out and so that's why she had to direct the air shuttle actually did the air shuttle decide to go around on its own yeah it did yeah i'm pretty certain it did uh which is why i was asking its height because i don't know i've done go arounds at 50 feet Mm -hmm. uh, and um, you know, going around a thousand feet, uh, you know, there's there's still a considerable time and distance uh, for you to make sure that it is absolutely necessary. I'm not suggesting mm -hmm. you wait all the way to fifty feet, but you might give the the squeeze play a chance to play out, as mm -hmm. it were, for a little longer and see if it is going to work. Because I got the impression that they might have uh, jumped in there a little bit quick. Yeah, I think so. It may have worked out, but in the in the um, opinion of the flight crew on the air shuttle flight, they decided that that wasn't going to work out. Yeah, yeah and, no. and no problem with that whatsoever. Uh, but um, the air traffic is probably pretty experienced. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you could carry on for another... 600 feet probably that's another two miles just to see what's going to happen because you know she does it all the time uh you know we're not quite so practiced at estimating whether the taking the aircraft departing is going to give it enough room if she doesn't think it's going to work she'll probably send you around anyway so uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm not criticising the crew for doing it. You always yeah. take what you think is the safest action, but of course, the safest action this resulted in an RA, right. which is not at all safe. You had to figure out, okay, if you, if I go around, what is that going to mean for me now? Because that airplane's taking off, and they're going to be climbing right up into my yeah. flight path, 
What do we do? And right under my belly. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to see them. I'm not going to be able them. to see them, which they could not. They only got the TCAS RA. Yeah, I agree with you, Nick. I mean, sometimes it may not be optimum and completely legal, but in this case, it wouldn't be your fault. It would be the tower controller's fault. But, you know, the I think, in my opinion, the safety ramification is uh, is much more significant if you go around from that point than if you just continue to a landing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But having said that, uh, in no way would I criticize the crew because, uh, you know, uh, is there... Um, is there a right to do a go around mm -hmm. if at any point sure. they don't they, pardon me, they're going to have clearance. Yeah, you're right. All right. Well, um, interesting discussion regarding go arounds and uh, continuing landing with a tight clearance and such. And uh, we are going to go ahead and uh, find out what has been going on with captain nick are going getting to know us getting to know captain nick segment there he is in the middle there without a funny hat like all the rest of us on the crew i, I thought that was pretty funny it's no a, I, we don't think it's very it's a very beanie funny hat oh you think so <laughs> yeah but not yeah okay <laughs> it's not ridiculous like all the other hats that we have no that's true yeah i'll give you that right. well what have you been up to captain nick sir well, I've been doing a fair amount of work at the computer, and uh, you know, one of the dreadful things about becoming uh, uh, aged is that your muscles and your shoulders and everything else tends to cramp up. So, I couldn't do much work yesterday because my back went into spasm mm. around my neck, and my whole neck and shoulders are ah, horrible. So, uh, I was popping pills all yesterday. But um, while I was doing that, I was thinking I, I won't work at the computer. But then I suddenly realized, uh, leafing through, you know, on the iPad, that uh, Facebook said, oh, you've been, you know, your password's been reset and I couldn't get in. And I'm going, hmm? why can't I get into Facebook? Um, so I request, requested new passwords and reset it. Uh, and um, then I noticed in my email, I had some threatening email from someone who said it, hacked into my email account, and unless I paid up a bunch of money, he was uh, going to activate a, a virus which is he'd had embedded in my oh, computer. Oh, Nick, I'm sorry. I That was me, and I just <laughs> thought it was a, a funny joke to play on you. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know good. you would think it was serious. <laughs> serious, yeah. All right, very good. No, it wasn't. Oh, so I don't have to worry about it. That's okay. Then. Yeah, don't worry. So, but, uh, it, I mean, it... it came from my own email account to my own email account. So I'm going, mm, hmm. that's odd. Anyway. Um, <laughs> You're sending yourself email. Okay. Exactly. So I had that in the back of my mind. Then my Instagram account went down and I'm going, oh my God, what's going on here? So I spent the whole day uh, trying to fix and redo all the security for everything, even though I've got you know, pretty good passwords, and um, I, I use uh, additional security like uh, a secondary, you know, re requirement like using your phone or whatever. Do you use like password um, one two three four five? <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> I knew it. No, I, I use the password password because no one will ever think of that. Oh yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, I thought so. Uh, anyway, that's that's been an absolute nightmare. So if mm. if you. <laughs> If you follow me on Facebook or Instagram, uh, 
uh, or you send me emails, then things may not be going very smoothly and for a while. Uh, I actually, oh, when I wake up helpful. this morning, discovered that Facebook had actually sh shut down my page uh, because of uh, someone had, the, the person who had got on to it had posted half a dozen uh, ISIS um, oh. terrorist pictures on my uh, Facebook account. I warned you about so, that, Captain Nick. Stop <laughs> yeah. posting the ISIS terrorist Yeah, I know. It's just a, such a nice bunch of guys. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I had to convince Facebook that I didn't do it, and uh, I promise not to do it again, even though I didn't do it. Um, so it's been a bit of a nightmare. Oh, so, uh, I, you know, I was thinking to myself after a while, I'm just going to get rid of these accounts what do I need them for? Mm -hmm. More hassle than you can shake a stick at. But I haven't. I've managed to get most working again. I'm just going to see if this this low life is going to uh, give me any more hassle. So we'll wait and see. Mm. Uh, on in the meantime, uh, I have uh, <laughs> been having great fun. <laughs> our, our new dog has been spayed and during the period after the operation we've uh, not been allowed to excise her and she's a very young and energetic dog so not <laughs> giving her exercise just to stop the uh, the operation from coming apart around her insides um she has turned into an absolute monster <laughs> monster dog <laughs> she's going around bullying everybody and biting everybody well play biting everybody and getting way too energetic um so we're gonna have to try and get her out for some walks now we're allowed to walk her we're gonna walk her a double time for a while uh, so that's <laughs> been upsetting everyone especially our older dogs who are not used to having a hooligan like this around <laughs> do you have um, a tranquilizer pistol handy well <laughs> I'm just enough saying. the vet gave us some pills oh which okay. worked pretty well you now do you know that you're supposed to get them and... to your dog and not you're not <laughs> supposed to take them oh oh damn. <laughs> i was enjoying the sleep i was getting very relaxed I, you know my muscles went limber this is great yeah Anyway, um, that's been it, really. Uh, not much else to say uh, other than um, take a look at next week's cover art because uh, for this show, because uh, it's it's an intriguing program. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. Jeff discovered it, and uh, you type in keywords and then watch it generate. What's the artificial intelligence? generate an image uh, depending on what you've requested very very interesting uh called uh, mid journey uh all one word midjourney.com and uh if you get a spare moment go on their website and have a play it takes you a little while to get your head around how to set it up but uh, the results are fascinating we'll see anyway yeah. talking of artwork do you want me to talk about last week's yeah. Yeah. So we were, it, it came from the uh, discussion about the reporter who thought that uh, the thrust reverser holes gap in, in the jet engine was actually damage that had caused, a, uh, I think it was a quaint ass aircraft, wasn't it, to, mm -hmm. uh, yes. to land yes. with yes. an engine failure. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, it wasn't. The picture that he ascribed to this engine damage was just the reverses working. So mm-hmm. we all know what they are. But uh, just to help the general public and more importantly, the press, we put a picture up uh, describing the A hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, is the loosely around the intake, <laughs> but more importantly, pointing at the reporter. Yes. And, <laughs> and the B-hole, of course, is the reverser, and the C-hole is the uh, jet pipe. So uh, we thought that was quite funny. Yeah, that's very ha- very informative and helpful, I think, for yes, the aviation Yes, that's right, for any press people out there. Yeah. And if yeah. you're uh, trying to find the show number, look on the little newspaper he's got under his arm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see it. Very subtle. Very yeah. subtle, yeah. There All right. Go. Very nice. Well done, Nick. Yes. A-hole, B-hole, C-hole. That's the, the title one. of our last show. The one. Very don't, nice. don't be an A-hole. Nice. Yeah, don't be an A-hole. All right. No, definitely don't be an A-hole. <laughs> you could be a B-hole or a C-hole. Yeah, that's acceptable. Just, yeah. just try so to Jeff, stay away. We got about... 35 minutes left, uh, 35 so if minutes. you want to do your okay. Getting to Know You and Coffee Fund oh, or whatever. Well, you know, I I think um, I really don't have anything to add to what I mentioned at the okay. beginning of the show, really. I'm just uh, between uh, yep. trips. I go back out on Monday evening, which is not normal. for So, you know, my favorite first officer, Brent. And I are flying together a lot lately, and because we enjoy each other's company. Have you started holding hands. Yet? Well, I don't want to really talk about that <laughs> yet. You know, there's going to be an announcement at some point. But Brent's <laughs> wife Judy really hasn't been informed yet, so we want to make sure. Oh, okay. Fair take enough. care of all that behind the scenes. No, um, but uh, Brent's a good friend, and uh, we uh, so for for March because it's not going to be much longer before he does his upgrade training and I won't be able to fly with him anymore because he's going to be a captain on this airplane. And, uh, so I've been, I, you know, kind of letting him do the bidding of the trips. And as you know, I've mentioned it many times. I don't like flying at night. I just would rather fly during the day. And, uh, I think four out of the five flights that we're flying together, uh, this month are at night, that first leg. But there's a good reason for it because, for instance, this trip that we're flying on Monday night, one leg to Burlington, Vermont, and then we're uh, that's it. And then we're off all day the next day, Tuesday, uh, which is Liz's birthday, by the way. And uh-huh. Wednesday, um, one leg, I believe, back to Atlanta. So it's like two flights over a three-day period, which is a, a great uh, average. It's so it's like worth from, you know flying at night for that one leg. But I said, there better not be weather, Brent. Otherwise, you're flying the airplane for that leg. Anywho, uh, so that's my next uh, trip for the for the next month or next week. I, oh, yeah, actually, I may have more than one trip. I think there's another trip that we fly on Thursday and Friday as well. Yeah, but, one uh, trip a week would be just... Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> extracting the urine, but that I one. I think... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm going to be also, so that's Burlington on Monday night and Tuesday night. And then on Thursday night, I'll be in Jackson, Mississippi uh, for our trip at uh, the end of the week. All right, so that's that's really it for me. I'll be singing uh, tomorrow and Sunday, and uh, as I normally do. And now you're all caught up with 
quick quick yeah. coffee fund. Hey, okay. man, Micah has reminded us that a couple of our friends are having birthdays, by the way. Are they? Okay. Yeah. Pips is today. Oh. So happy birthday, uh, Happy Pip birthday, Rooney. Pip. There and uh, Captain L as well? Uh, on Sunday. On so. Sunday, Captain L. Oh, yeah. man. Your, your pal, our pal, Captain L. Love it. Absolutely. Well, All right. happy birthday. And by the way, the Plane Safety Podcast is another great aviation podcast that you need to check out. <laughs> it's ideal for people who don't really like podcasts because it only <laughs> comes out once a year. Well, you know, you don't want to get too jammed up with having to listen to a podcast. <laughs> you definitely won't with Pip's podcast. <laughs> it's really good fun, though. They, those guys are really, Oh, it really, is. Yeah, really I always wonderful. enjoy them. It's a yeah. shame that they come out more often. Yeah, they need to come out more often. I loved it when his suitcase oh. got stuck up a tree. <laughs> yeah, how does that happen? That's weird. Yeah, exactly. Only in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) All right, coffee fun time. Johnny, how about some more coffee? How about some more coffee? I'll take some. Thank you. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Coffee fun. Your way to support our show financially if you have the resources to do so. And uh, a couple different ways to do that. One is the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is uh, basically a PayPal donation page. And uh, Victoria Cooley, K-U-L-L-I, Cooley, I'm going to say. Victoria, thank you so much for your very generous donation. We do appreciate it. She added a note said, I hope to become a patron at some point soon. So thank you, Victoria. We do appreciate we we appreciate the uh, females in aviation and the female enthusiasts out there that uh, listen to our show. So thanks, appreciate that. Also, patron uh, Patreon, not patronize. <laughs> That's <laughs> something entirely different. Uh, Patreon is another way to support our show. You can become a patron, and well, I, I mentioned him on the last episode because I almost forgot about just shortly before we recorded the last show. Um, Michael uh, signed up to be a producer, Michael Allen Newman, but I didn't have a graphic for him. So I thought, I I owe that to you, man. So there you go. Michael Allen Newman, a new patron via patreon.com. So please check it out by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee and consider becoming part of the coffee bar uh, fund, coffee bar club. There we go. Uh, you'll be glad you did, and we will too. Okay, we've right. got almost exactly half an hour left, Jeff, so we'll start the plane tail and okay. get going. All right, so uh, control room's telling me we have about a half an hour left, and we need to put that plane tail in this segment. And so without further ado, I'm going to navigate to our plane tail for this week. And uh, here we go. The old pilot has... A plain tale for us called Great Uncle Baz. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Great Uncle Baz. In the United States, the very country that proudly claimed to be the birthplace of powered flight, early aviation had not progressed quite as fast as might have been expected. 
Aircraft manufacturers in Europe, boosted by the need to develop credible air forces for the approaching war, had stolen a march on American aviators. Not to say that those like the Wright brothers and Glenn Curtis weren't prospering, but even for them the European enthusiasm for aircraft and flying schools offered more opportunities. In those early days, the challenges that aviators took on were really about breaking records of speed and height, often to win prizes. Pilots participated in county fairs or even just out on farmers' fields performing risky manoeuvres for both the thrill of the danger, the adulation of the crowds and, of course, for money. The crowds attended such events not just for the spectacle but undoubtedly for the thrill of a possible crash, of which there were plenty. Performing aerobatics in those early fragile flying machines was risky in the extreme. The newspapers stirred a frenzy of public interest into a wildfire and then fanned the flames by offering enormous sums of money to competing pilots. Carbraith Rogers attempted to win and offered $50,000 by flying across the entire country in 30 days. Accidents, bad weather and navigation difficulties ensured that the prize would remain unclaimed by Rogers, but he did complete the journey only to die in an accident at Long Beach during a demonstration when he was hit by a flock of seagulls. As the presence of an aeroplane became more mundane, increasingly dangerous stunts were required to bring the big crowds. Wing walking became popular, which graduated to handstands on the wing, hanging off them and then jumping between two aircraft. Groups of aviators became flying circuses within which they took enormous risks, but the rewards of perhaps $1,500 a day overcame any reluctance. Lincoln Beachy was one such performer, who became famous for his stunts such as flying at 20 feet over the Niagara Falls under the Honeymoon Bridge. Even President Wilson became involved when Beachy buzzed the White House before flying past the Washington Monument upside down. He eventually crashed, performing at an international exposition in San Francisco when the wings of his machine fell off, sending the daredevil plunging to his death. In Europe, military aviation was already well developed when the war broke out, and the urgency to develop this new aspect of warfare ensured that it evolved at a fast pace. No such drive existed in the United States, as there was a strong desire to remain neutral. When the war started, the first aero squadron of the U.S. Signal Corps had only six Curtis Jenny aircraft. 12 officers and 224 enlisted men, and it was woefully unprepared for the kind of mechanised war that was being fought in France with its barbed wire tanks, trenches and artillery. The Germans had embarked on total war, with their submarines torpedoing neutral American merchant ships, their zeppelins bombing centres of population in England, and using poison gas against troops and civilians alike in Belgium. The belligerents were making good use of their aircraft and technology, with advances such as synchronised machine guns firing through the propeller arc, quality cameras capable of oblique panoramas. 
Artillery spotting had developed into a fine art, as had reconnaissance and harassing the enemy with aerial bombardment and strafing. The aircraft that conducted such missions were often vulnerable, but they were now escorted by nimble and well-armed scout aircraft that could protect them from enemy attack. In addition, the observers who performed the practical duties required during such missions could protect themselves with rearward-firing machine guns. It was into this world that the story of listener Sam Dawson's great-uncle comes. Baz Bagby had been a professional baseball catcher in the minor leagues before he enrolled into MIT, graduating as a mechanical engineer, before he responded to the call to arms as America joined the war. The World War had started three years earlier, and the United States had remained largely neutral. But eventually, German atrocities in Belgium, the sinking of the passenger liner RMS Lusitania, and a year-long campaign by President Woodrow Wilson were enough to sway public opinion. In particular, when British intelligence made public a secret offer by the German Empire to help Mexico regain territory lost during the Mexican-American War, the people of the United States finally saw a need to join the Allied forces embattled in France. Baz's application to the Officer Candidate School in Artillery was successful, but after completing his training and emerging as a second lieutenant, he became keen to transfer from artillery to flying, telling his family he believed the Air Corps was destined to be the largest factor in winning the war. He was repeatedly turned down for pilot training, mainly as there was a greater need for observers, and after a few months' wait, he was shipped out, arriving in France in early March 1918. Little did he know his war experience was only going to last nine months. He was well trained by a French unit and became the only American observer on his intake that was sent to a French escadrille, a small squadron. It was when in action he began to really understand the value of the work he was doing as an observer. During the next few months, he flew 111 missions in Spads and Breges, usually over enemy territory, acting as the aircraft's gunner, bombardier, photographer and artillery liaison, often under the protection of fighter aircraft, so that his pilot could fly the steady routes he needed to carry out his mapping and reconnaissance duties. Whilst he yearned to become a pilot himself, Baz had realised that his work was essential to the commanders below fighting in the trenches. It wasn't long before one of the primitive aircraft he was flying in suffered an engine failure after takeoff. Without much height, they were forced to land ahead in a wheat field, whereupon their spat turned turtle and he ended up hanging in his straps upside down, but unhurt. He and his pilot extracted themselves from the aircraft, whereupon his companion said, as he straightened his fine moustache, C'est la guerre, Bagby. Donnez-moi une cigarette. It wasn't until he was transferred to an American unit that Baz received his first commendation for his coolness and devotion to duty, when he brought down an enemy aircraft whilst fighting a formation of eight German machines. He found it odd that the observation duties he performed were deemed less important than the downing of a single aircraft. 
noting that photos of the Bosch back areas were more valuable and saved many lives, but there was no glory attached to it. I've gotten more credit for simply downing a Bosch than for all the rest of my work put together, he said. During his time with the 88th Air Squadron, Baz often flew with his friend, Lieutenant Bernie Bernheimer, and it was after overhearing a senior officer complaining that he couldn't get photos of the Meuse River bridges because of bad weather that Baz and Bernie took it upon themselves to accomplish the flight. On the way back, they strafed an airfield, shot up some trucks, some artillery being moved, and a bunch of other vehicles. They were the only aircraft out in such bad weather and caught the sharp end of their commander's tongue, but the chief of the 3rd Air Service remarked, Bernheimer and Bagby are at it again, are they? Good work. And they were both awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which Baz added to his wartime collection of awards, medals and commendations, which included the Croix de Guerre. After serving in France for nine months, the armistice was signed and Baz became a member of the occupying forces, playing baseball, flying around, photographing the countryside and fulfilling his long-time ambition of learning to become a pilot. His logbook tells of wonderful solo flights over Paris and Luxembourg, winging his aircraft around the sky and of the inevitable rough landings which seemed to be his stock in trade. The joy of flying had infected Baz, and he had decided to remain in the military so long as it was in the air service. Returning home from the war, Baz found America struggling with its difficulties, a few of which were prohibition, race riots, lynchings and the Great Migration, labour unrest and the fear of Bolshevism. But Baz wasn't the only returning war hero. Arguably the greatest was Brigadier General Billy Mitchell. During the war, Mitchell had proved himself a master tactician and devoted supporter of air power, and on his return he was determined to advance its cause in any way possible. He had arguably done more to demonstrate the military potential of the aircraft than any other American, for which he would one day be recognised as the father of the United States Air Force. But his work was clouded by uncertainty. With the signing of the armistice, the government had cancelled virtually all of its orders for new machines, forcing a number of manufacturers out of business. Enter the Great Transcontinental Air Race, officially named the First Transcontinental Reliability and Endurance Test. With Congressional Air Service budget hearings imminent, Mitchell planned the contest in hopes that such a widely publicised spectacle would boost interest in aviation throughout the United States. It became a headline-grabbing spectacle in which military pilots would compete over a distance of 5,402 miles. Competitors would start either in San Francisco on the west coast or Long Island in the east and had to complete flights that would take them via at least 20 nominated airfields to the opposite coast and back again. The aircraft competed for various prizes, shortest elapsed time, shortest total time, speed, endurance and handicap, but the press were only interested in one, the first to get there. 
Commanding officers nominated the participating aircrew, and Baz Bagby was one of the lucky ones, along with his friend, Lieutenant Colonel John Reynolds. As the aircraft started arriving at their departure points, the dangers of aviation, even in 1919, were being demonstrated. After departing Bingham for Long Island, one aircraft encountered heavy fog near Point Jervis, crashed and killed the pilot. Another died in an accident at deposit, but elsewhere, two men survived crashing in flames and another pair were pulled alive from the waters of Lake Erie. It was destined to be a gruelling race, fraught with mechanical failures, bad weather, over 50 crashes and a total of nine deaths. Of the 62 entries, only eight would complete the race. The start was staggered, with the most senior officers somehow departing first, the last aircraft leaving hours later. Baz and John were number 26 to leave Roosevelt Field on Long Island, now a large shopping mall, which delayed them about three hours. But after all the razzmatazz, bands, aerobatic displays by General Mitchell and speeches, it was good to get on their way. The Assistant Secretary of War expressed a wish to fly, so a pilot and aircraft were found, but his flight only lasted a few seconds when Captain Cleary had a career-stopping engine failure which ended up cartwheeling his machine into a ball of wreckage. Luckily, both emerged safe, if a little shaken. Flights for the competitors lasted a little more than an hour each, and every staging airfield supposedly had fuel and would log their time on the ground, a minimum of 30 minutes. On day one, Baz made it as far as Buffalo, where they were held since it was getting a bit dark, but they used the time to make repairs that may have well prevented a forced landing later on. However, Maynard, the leader, had made it as far as Chicago. Other pilots hadn't been so lucky and four of the eastern aircraft had already dropped out with a variety of problems such as a fire and a DH-4 with an engine failure that crashed, killing the mechanic and injuring the pilot. There was a smaller send-off from Presido Field in San Francisco, and there the intrepid pilots had to climb out of the fog to tackle the hazardous Sierra Nevada and Rockies. But with only 14 planes, their departure was achieved in only a quarter of an hour. What faced the western pilots was a wall of mountains, but they were more used to the blinding snow, whereas those pilots from the east would struggle to get over them. Even so, Lieutenant Rice was forced to land his SE-5 in a farmer's field, wrecking his aircraft and chances of competing. Accidents continued to plague the competitors, with Sergeant McClure dying during a landing. It was common for the second occupant of a DH-4 machine to clamber out and sit on the rear fuselage during landing to prevent it from nosing over in the muddy conditions on most fields, a manoeuvre that often shook the fuel tank free, killing the pilot. McClure had unbuckled his harness, ready to climb out, when a bump threw him from his aircraft. Another co-pilot who did this was catapulted from the tail far into the air when the machine tipped over anyway. He was lucky to survive, but accidents resulting from this risky procedure were common. 
Crossing the vast continent with weather and terrain a major factor, there were more incidents than I could ever recount here, both to our hero, Baz, and the others who took part. But eventually the press named Belvin Maynard the winner when he was the first to arrive at his destination, San Francisco, regardless that the others who departed Roosevelt Field after him might have completed the distance at a faster speed. However, the city gave him a hearty welcome and a magnificent luncheon, even though the race was actually only half completed. The first to land at Roosevelt Field was declared to be Major Carl Spots, despite the fact that a lower-ranking racer landed 20 seconds before him. Most competitors that made it across in either direction were exhausted, and many didn't attempt the return journey, but some brave cells were determined to, including Baz Bagby, who had arrived in San Francisco in ninth place. Those that did set off to complete the double crossing were brave men, since they and their machines were very tired. The route was now pockmarked by wrecked aircraft, and as the death toll rose, the newspapers were criticising the inadequacy of the air service's equipment. Out of the field entrance, only eight finished the round trip, Six from the east, including Baz Bagby, and two from the west. The first man to land in both directions was Belvin Maynard, but the shortest flight time was actually achieved by 2nd Lieutenant Alexander Pearson in a DH-4, with a total flight time of 48 hours and 14 minutes. There were few tangible rewards, but ten years after the race, Baz and others received a gold medallion honouring their participation. Had the race achieved its aim for Billy Mitchell's independent air force? Sadly not. And the old guard in the Army and Navy denied the arguments, stating that an air force acting independently could of its own accord neither win a war at the present time, nor so far as they could tell at any time in the future. But that, of course, is not the end of the story, and what happened next might well be the subject of another tale. With thanks to listener Sam Dawson and Betty Gorky, the author of the book about Baz Bagby, A Broken Propeller. What a tease you are. <laughs> well, we'll have to wait to see if I get round to writing the history of the formation of the United States Air Force. But uh, anyway, my great thanks to uh, Sam for the lovely book, A Broken Propeller, uh, and his super little note that he uh, left in there, which was, uh, which was brilliant. Came as a surprise. And um, I, he, despite the fact that he said uh, it's not exactly Ernest Hemingway, I thought it was a great read. So if uh, our lovely librarian uh, wants to uh, perhaps consider putting this forward, uh, it's a broken propeller, Baz Bagby and America's first transcontinental air, continental air race by Betty Gorky. So uh, it was good, a good story. I, I There were so many interesting nuggets of information in there 
but I, I just couldn't get it all in. It was such a shame, but there mm. you go. I did my best. Oh, I, 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 you did a grand job. And perhaps we're going to hear some more about what happened. Well, absolutely, because uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bagby, as he ended up, hmm. um, fought in the Second World War as well. Oh. <laughs> the family story about that is quite remarkable because he went AWOL. Not as you think to uh, go back home or go and see his wife or something, so that he could embark on a a parachute drop <laughs> over France on D Day. Wow. I thought that was brilliant. So uh, yeah, well done to him. He survived though, which is great. And the questioning of whether or not an independent air force was going to be something that could be, you know, effective and successful. I think I know the answer to that. Uh, yeah, I think we all do. But it took, it took until the <laughs> end of the Second World War before uh, it happened. Well, yeah. Sometimes yeah. great things take time. Exactly. Right. So, Jeff, you've got Very about good. nine minutes to the two-hour mark, uh, hour and a half mark. Do you want to carry it okay. on or do you want to just wrap it up or what would you Yeah, like? I think we should um, – let's try to knock out at least one okay. uh, piece of feedback. Number three. Yeah. Absolutely. Number three. Okay. So we're getting close to the allotted time for part two of this hot mess. And uh, we're going to do at least one of these pieces of feedback. And this one's from David, um, November Z2. The one thing about the, uh, oh, I'm sorry. New Zealand flight number two returned to Auckland when JFK had the fire, which is missed in the articles uh, adds context to the return is that uh, NZ had just suffered, New Zealand had just suffered the most destructive cyclone in history. This oh, included all Air New that. Zealand flights to and from um, Auckland being canceled for over 24 hours. So there were over 6,000 passengers with canceled flights. As part of the recovery, they had all of the operational spares in use. So a plane stuck at an outstation would result in many more flights being canceled and have a big cascading delay. The 200 passengers on the plane would turn into thousands affected. Returning 200 passengers minimized the impact. The ops center was looking at the big picture. Also, look at the recent Southwest meltdown. When you have weather-related um, irregular operations, don't fly planes to cities where there isn't a rested crew to fly it on schedule, as the issues, issues will just cascade. Good point, David. Well, that's fascinating because yeah. uh, I, I was curious. There had to be a reason why mm -hmm. they turned that airplane around only nearly halfway through its flight. Mm -hmm. So it flew a 16 hour. Yeah, eight, eight yeah. hours into the flight, they turned around. So. Yeah. Wow. And now we know. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate that, David. And I'm sure the captain, uh, once someone had told him what was going on, uh, was happy to return it to New Zealand. Maybe not happily. But no, perhaps not. <laughs> well, he's getting paid regardless, isn't yeah. he? He was he's looking. Just, he's going to miss a chance to date his girlfriend in New York. I know, his, his little honey in New York. <laughs> yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking girl of that. Girl in every port. It's interesting. Port in every girl. So I was asking somebody, uh, like the, the flights that Acme has from uh, Atlanta and New York to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, I'm thinking, you know, the, every flight that you're flying down there is in the middle of the night and you're going through the intertropical convergence oh, zone yeah at nice. both times and they're both at night yeah. 
And I'm thinking, man, that must be a junior trip. And uh, I was talking to a person who flies the uh, aircraft. And he goes, well, <laughs> I said, what? He goes, well, yes and no. I said, <laughs> you have a group of people who are very senior who do it and a, a group of people that are very junior because they don't really want to do it, but they have to because they're junior. And I said, what? Come again? He goes, well, those little uh, young ladies in uh, in uh, Brazil? South Brazil, or yeah, yeah, they, uh, uh, I guess people have, you know, some relationships, relationships or something exactly. with them. Yep. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah, Who possibly. knows? I don't know. I, I don't know anything about it. It's a good thing I didn't fly international. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, One more. I'll just leave it there. Number four. Okay. Well, I did, but I was squeaky clean. Well, you're you're uh, a man of of um, integrity. He's got Jilly at home. The yes. How do you I mean, spell that again? Integrity. I n t e g r i t y. I think maybe. I'm sure I'm one of those. Yes. yes, you are, and you have somebody very important to always return to. With a, Absolutely. With a clean yep. conscience. Yes. A, a, a lovely lady. All right. Number and four, um, four. Okay. Uh, we're going to do this and then we're going to stop um, part two of this part or three part series. Uh, this is from Ben. Also from, uh, well, I don't know if it, David was from down under. I'm guessing he was. But uh, I know for sure that Ben is because he signs it Ben from Australia. Uh, just some feedback regarding uh, Quainas's uh, accident record. I think that's the, the way you say that. Quainars. Quainars. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's the proper pronunciation. While, yes, while it is true that they indeed have never lost a jet, he put in all caps, a jet. They have lost propeller aircraft in the past with 14 fatal accidents between 1927 and 1951, including two oh, short oh, S-23 M Empire Flying boats shot down by the I Japanese. I think I've been victim of uh, Quaint Arse's publication. You the might publicity, have. Uh, yes, marketing. PR. Is really, uh, marketing, yeah. The PR exactly. people are, are, are very successful. Uh, the last hull loss was an L-1049 Super Constellation that crashed during a rejected takeoff in Mauritius? Mauritius. Mauritius, uh, 19, yes. Mauritius to, in 1960. We used to operate down there. Lovely place. Oh. No fatalities in this case, but they did lose the uh, Lockheed. Uh, something that is not widely known is that a Qantas 747 had a near mid-air collision with a U.S. Air Force C-5 over Thailand in 1990. Apparently, the C-5 missed them by about 50 feet in a head-on pass at 37,000 feet. Wow. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> close. Make your eyes water, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, no kidding. Sphincter <laughs> tightener. Uh, let's see. Of, it, of interest is uh, this Reddit thread. It has some great pictures, one of which we're showing right now in our um, uh, video, uh, of the restoration to a flying condition rumored to cost in excess of 100 million Australian dollars of OJH, the 747-400, involved in the Bangkok runway overrun. And you know what? I had planned to uh, share these images, which are pretty impressive. We'll go through some right now, and let me go oh. over here. And um, Well, that one's impressive enough. Yep. So we're not too sure if their um, claim of the world's safest airline 
uh, is truly justified. Is that what we're saying? Well, there, I don't Jenny? know. Have they claimed that they're the safest or they just never have lost no, a, yeah. a whole? Well, a bit of both, really, yeah. I think. Yeah. Oh, have they? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. maybe. But perhaps he's right. Perhaps they say they've never lost a jet. Mm -hmm. mm. And they went through great effort to, you know, um, restore oh, yeah. and repair. Huge expense. And salvage this airplane here which I'm going to add to the stream here. So this is the Reddit page. And uh, so let me go back to Reddit and uh, see if I can get this into a, a bigger... Nope, nope, nope. Okay. Well, anyway, so that's the one we were... <laughs> look at that. That looks sad, doesn't it? Oh, golly. Uh, 747 yes. with the inboard engine. Oh, look at all the wrinkles on the skin there. Mm -hmm. Oh, That's good. <laughs> wow. You should have just turned left and carried on down that road. Oh, hello. <laughs> oh, golly gosh. The big nose of the aircraft on a roadway. And wow. uh, a lot of wheels and tires buried in the mud. Probably luckily, lucky that it was uh, kind of muddy um, that they, uh, the end of the runway that they kind of went yeah. through. Um. And it, so th there are several pictures. That's not it. That's a uh, Antonov. I guess they used the Antonov to uh, uh, take some of the pieces of this aircraft and fly it back to uh, Australia. Golly. And uh, yeah, what so a it's job that must have been to take that apart, fly it home, and then fix it and put it all back together again. What? Now, I think I read somewhere in this that said that a, a new one to replace it would have been like twice as much, $200 million. Look at that. Look at all these wiring harnesses and everything else they have to put all back together. I mean, that is amazing to me that they put basically took the airplane apart, shipped it back to Australia, and then basically remade it like a Frankenstein <laughs> 747. <laughs> yeah. And apparently this thing Probably flew gosh. for many, many years um, after they rebuilt it. So mm. I'll put a link oh, to this in they the did show good notes work. if you want to take a look. They did good work. Yes, they did. Anyway. Uh, hands off to the engineers. That's a hell of a job. Yeah. Is that the captain there getting his license back? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't see any captions here. I don't know what's uh, going on here. Uh, yeah. That might be the arrest. the bill. That, or, or it could be the bill or it could be the uh, arrest um, uh, documentation <laughs> that he's going to be put in jail for the rest of his life. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, we'll put a link to this Reddit article. Uh, thank you. Great article. Yeah. Uh, very much, uh, Ben, for sending that in. Yeah. Thanks for all that uh, interesting information that proved me to be a complete liar. But there you go. <laughs> well, no, I think you, you're you not a liar. You were ju you just succumbed to, as most of us did, the uh, the rhetoric and the marketing. The publicity. Doublespeak. Yes, exactly. And uh, yeah, made some assumptions, I guess. All right. That's going to be it for part two. Thank you so much, Captain Nick, for joining us today. My and pleasure. We look forward to uh, seeing the the uh, art for the show, uh, and we'll talk about it on the next episode. And until then, have a great weekend. Please say hi to Jilly and the dogs and uh, Liz. Thanks again for all the help behind the scenes. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Great job with the plain tail. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Nick. And... Uh, that's that's going to do it for On to part three, part two and look forward to part three.
very soon. Yeah. Have fun with Rick. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, look who's here. It is from his home studio in the Valley of the Sun, world traveler, airplane mechanic, dog rescue volunteer, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. Hey, I'm along for part three, but better late than never. We got a lot of catch up on, so let's get to it. Absolutely. All right. Uh, oops, didn't mean to kick my mic stand. That's that's very unprofessional, Jeff. Okay, uh, let's. Uh, we're going to catch up with Rick uh, soon, but we're going to first knock out this news item uh, that we held aside for Rick, and you'll see why here soon. Uh, this is from the Aviation Herald. A Bluebird Cargo Boeing 737-400 registration Tango Foxtrot Bravo Bravo Lima. Performing ferry flight 9781 from Montatiari, Italy, to uh, Paris, oh, Charles nice. de Gaulle, France. Mon, magnifico, or whatever. I don't know. Magnifico. I don't know. Uh, magnifico. Had been en route at flight level 300 and flight level 290 when during the descent towards Paris, a huge bang was heard that shook the entire aircraft, caused a strong yaw, and destabilized the flight path. The flight crew investigated and determined that the payload ballast loaded in the most aft position of the main cargo hold had moved forward into the most forward position. The bangs repeated when the crew extended the flaps and landing gear. The aircraft continued for a safe landing on Charles de Gaulle's runway to six left. The French BEA, let's see if I can find my little BEA sound thing. Here we go. Bureau d'enquête et d'analyse. Exactly. Uh, reported that the aircraft had been loaded with a payload ballast in the cargo bay, position 10, which is most aft of the main cargo hold. During the descent, the ballast slammed against the G9 wall at the most forward position of the main cargo hold. That's probably a pretty good distance there. Uh, During flap and gear extension, the ballast moved again and slammed against the G9 wall again. The occurrence was rated an incident and is being investigated by the Bureau d'enquête et d'analyse. The occurrence aircraft remained on the ground in Paris until the 16th of February 2023 before returning to service. So now you see why we're going to have Rick tell us about is this really a serious thing, Rick, and what happened here? Do oh you yeah. Suppose? Oh yeah. This 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 can be this can be very very serious and. Um, so usually, um, and this happens a lot when you have um, um, ferry flights and just empty flights. Here, you know, you, you you carry all your all your freight over to one location, and then you basically reposition the jet somewhere else. And then a lot of times, um, you'll carry back either um, empty unit load uh, load devices or ULDs or containers. Or um, a lot of times you'll carry uh, what are called um, cookie sheets. Well, they're, not, they're not actual cookie sheets, but they're um, these um, big uh, metal squares where you you know you palletize uh, boxes and you wrap them around with uh, um, uh, netting that's you know designed for that kind of stuff. Um, and so ideally, what you want to do is um, put this uh, ballast, you know, for lack of a better word, which is basically what it is. In the most, um, I guess, beneficial position as far as center of gravity is concerned. And why is that important? Well, basically, the center of gravity uh, on an airplane or on anything really is uh, if, if you were to you know, just 
pull out a pencil or a pen or whatever, if you, if you have it handy and just try to balance that on your finger. And basically when you have that balanced on your finger, the entire weight of that pen or pencil is concentrated on that point. That's the reason why it's being balanced. And that's basically what's happening when you're flying. Huh? The entire weight of the aircraft is balanced on its center of gravity. Now, the center of gravity can move forward or aft along what's called the CG range, right? So uh, as long as the center of gravity is within that range, then you're okay. The problem arises when the center of gravity goes outside the range, and this is what could have happened here. Now, the problem with and the reason why they, they loaded it aft is because an aft center of gravity yeah, it's 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 really the most beneficial as far as cruise is concerned because you have to keep in mind that your horizontal stabilizer, which is the little wings in the back of the airplane, they have to generate negative lift to counteract the positive lift that's being generated by the wings, right? And so if the center of gravity is further aft, the arm moment or basically the, uh, yeah, it's basically the arm, uh, which is the distance between where the center of gravity is to the point where that negative lift is being uh, generated, that arm is shorter. And so the lift required to balance that out is less. And so remember that anytime you generate lift, you also generate drag. And so if you need to generate less lift to balance that out, then the drag created is less as well, which turns into less fuel consumption, higher um, cruise altitude, higher cruise speed and all that stuff. But the problem is that if that center of gravity, if that, uh, yeah, if that center of gravity or, or the concentration of that weight goes outside that CG range, you might find yourself in a position where you might not be able to aerodynamically overcome that uh, out of CG uh, condition, causing you to perhaps lose control of the jet. Um, and so <laughs> when you have an empty airplane, it is very, very important to make sure that the locks on the floor or however it is that you are um, fastening that uh, cargo down is able to um, you know just basically uh, keep the the freight or the or the, the the ballast in position and not let it slide around because that could put you in a position where that center of gravity could go outside of that CD range putting you in a very very bad situation um, I remember this happened to me not to this extent but it was something similar um, it, uh, it was on a passenger jet and this was many, many years ago. That's why I can talk about it now. Hmm. Uh, we're going, yeah, we're going in from Miami, uh, down to Quito, the old Quito airport. This must've been like Oh six or Oh seven. And it was a light, it was a light load coming back to Quito that evening. And we all, we only had one unit load device or a container in the forward belly, uh, cargo, uh, area of a 767. And the area behind it was empty. And uh, same thing happened as we as we came around and started configuring the airplane for for, for landing, started you know putting flaps out and, and all that stuff out. Remember that as as you start configuring the airplane for landing, uh, your pitch changes. And so when your pitch changes, um, that is when you find yourself in and in, in what the possibility of your of of any loose cargo or any loose freight moving around. That's that's when it's it's the 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 most possible that it could happen there. So that's exactly what happened. The pitch changed and that ULD slammed back and it was this huge like bang sound, kind of like what the article said here. Mm -hmm. And like, I looked at the captain, he looked at me like, what the hell was that? 
and we couldn't figure out what it was. Hmm. And then it happened again, and then we kind of felt the airplane lurching, and then we're like, ah, so that's what that was. Landed, obviously, reported it, and it was also classified as an incident because you have to, you know, investigate what happened. Did the locks give out? Was it not loaded properly? Um, so, well, you know, a good thing I, that it. I'm sorry. I'm saying. I was just going to say that the good thing this 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 didn't turn into something more uh, more serious here because uh, it. I mean, when you have uh, CG um, shift issues. Uh, I remember, uh, what was it, back in 1997, and actually saw this happen in real time. I was back in A&P school down in Miami, and it was a fine air DCA taken off from the old 27 left runway there, t- taken off to the west. And it took off, and the, um, the freight shifted aft on takeoff, and then the airplane, I remember the airplane rotating, and um, the, the DCA is not known for its exceptional second segment climb <laughs> so it kind of you know takes off the very shallow initial climb out i remember this dc8 going up and like pitching up like it was a dc10 or an md11 i'm like what wow that's that's interesting that's not and then normal. yeah it was normal and then it just came back down it crashed in the other end of the airport there i remember that so uh well you know the first thing that i thought of when i read about this and i'm sure many people did as well uh, was april 29 um, 2013 uh, in Afghanistan, Bagram. Oops. Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, remember that uh, fatal yeah, crash yeah. of the North American 747 400 uh, with the now, uh, granted, completely different situation, but but similar. I mean, it, similar, was, a, it yeah. was a shift of cargo and uh, uh, put the CG out of the envelope. Um, now, in the case of the one we're talking about now and the one that you experienced yourself, Rick, you know, at least it stayed in the envelope. Um, stayed in the Ranger, absolutely. Yeah. And so you could, you know, still control the airplane. But in this case, as soon as that cargo uh, broke loose of its secure position, they were, they were just along for the ride. There was nothing they could do to yeah, uh, there's, recover from it. There isn't, and 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 that and that's just it. Once that, like you said, once the once the CG, you know, once the weight is outside of that envelope, that 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 range, you know, you cannot aerodynamically counteract that because the only way you really have to counteract any change in CG, either fore or aft, is by trimming the aircraft. And that, you know, that horizontal stabilizer is, is trimmable, and so you 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 generate the amount of lift required to counter that out, and um, that's why. Um, well, I mean, you flew 727s for many years and 737s now. That's one of the interesting things about those now is that, I mean, to this day on the 737, if you're a 737 flyer, uh, a driver, if you're sitting up in the cockpit, you can actually see the trim wheels going forward and aft. Um, and hear it. With, and, and hear Turn it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so uh, um, that's that's the aircraft constantly, you know, retrimming and keeping um, the, that center of gravity in the optimum position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like we said, when that when that weight's outside that envelope, outside that range, there's really nothing you can do. And you really are along for the ride. So, so. who's uh, now uh, in some of the comments in uh, the Aviation Herald article, some people were kind of blame, of course, blaming the, the people that loaded the airplane and uh, their job was to make sure that this was secured. But then other people were saying, well, don't let the pilots off the hook. I mean, they, they're responsible, too. Now, is that true? Um, no, no, okay. it's uh, no, it's so on a, on a freight flight. And in fact, um, at least in my my outfit, my our kind of operation here, um, when the uh, when the load master uh, hands you the load sheet, um, 
by him or her signing that load sheet, it, it's it's actually it's actually it's it's spelled out, you know, in black and white, and basically says that all locks have been secured, the cargo has been checked, all straps have been secured, you know, everything is the way it should be, and you know, this is why I'm signing this paper and, uh, and handing this to you because you know things are the way they should be, and um, you have to also keep in mind that um, in airplanes like the 737 and the 767, it's not like the 74. <clears throat> excuse me, or the triple seven where you can walk past the pallets or the ULDs and visually check the locks themselves. I mean, yourself uh, on a 767, 75, A300, I guess, 737. Uh, when the aircraft's loaded, you can't go back there because the, the size of the ULD conforms to the diameter of the fuselage. Uh, there's so there's really no physical way for you to go back there and check yourself. Okay, so... Uh, somebody also commented, <laughs> and he was kind of uh, flamed by a lot of the people saying, "Well, why couldn't the pilot, like one of the pilots, go back there and try to, you know, resecure the pallet?" <laughs> and um, <laughs> it didn't seem like, at least the people that have experience with this, like, yeah, like he could get crushed, <laughs> like, and die exactly. trying to resecure the thing. And not uh, only that, but you have to keep in mind that, in, or. In order for you to go back there, uh, you need to carry around a portable oxygen bottle with you because there is no there is no um, uh, you know oxygen system back there. It's it's a freighter, you know, because mm-hmm. you know freighters don't. So it is pressurized, but you you just have for backup. I mean, in case in ca- you, exactly in okay. case in case there's a there's a there's a explosive decompression, yeah. you, you need to be able to you know. Okay. Obviously, I mean the entire aircraft is pressurized and all that, but okay. you know it's okay. by by law you need to carry a a, a bottle back there with you and. Um, and then again, what you said, what if you get hurt? What if uh, yeah. that thing, I mean, can you imagine a, a, a ballast coming from the back of the aircraft all the way to the front That's of the aircraft? And, and, and you need to, you know, it's like you're Indiana Jones trying to, trying to, you know, yeah, the big jump ball. over, jump over the damn thing. No, no, no. <laughs> so no, that's, that's, yeah, that's the worst thing you can do. You know, this is just, just, uh, just, just stay in your, in your pilot position and, and, and land the aircraft safe that, uh, that thing should have been uh, taken care of on the ground. And, uh, you know, someone missed a step and that's not, that's not good. Well, Nigel in our live audience, uh, Nigel, not Demery, uh, says, how would you maneuver with the, uh, center of gravity out of the envelope in flight? Well, uh, well, <laughs> you can't. That's, that's exactly it. You can't, because remember, like like we like we said a little bit earlier, um, the only way really you have to counteract. So if you're if the aircraft's nose heavy, right, the only thing you can do is to um, trim the aircraft nose up, and there there's there's a point at which you run out of stabilizer, nose up stabilizer, and nose up elevator, and at that point, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you pull after is really you just run out of of aerodynamic um uh, i guess aerodynamic uh load back there to bring the nose up you just can't so mm-hmm. same thing goes with when when you're tail heavy there's there's not no not enough um, elevator to give you authority to pitch the aircraft over that north american 747 i think the opposite happened they were out of the uh, cog aft and so the nose came up at a very steep angle and the of course the only thing the pilots could do to bring the nose down is to put in a lot of bank to kind of lower the nose but there was no way they had enough altitude to you know lower the nose enough and try to level the wings enough to save it from so the first uh, frame of this uh, this image that we're looking at is when they had the thing about 90 degrees of bank which is a great way to bring the nose down but as i said had they been up at 
20,000 feet. I'm not sure that they would have been able to get out of it. Probably not, but mm-hmm. at least they would have had more time to try to, to figure, figure out the out. situation. But, you know, because they were so close uh, to the ground, by the time they uh, leveled the wings out, there was just not enough altitude to. Uh, and I think one of those, uh, one of those, didn't one of those, uh, armored vehicles go through the bulkhead and uh, disable the, the yes. hydraulics for the flight controls I as think well. you're right. So. Yeah, that, that was another problem that just compounded the whole thing. They were they just didn't have enough control. To- I do remember a um, a um, an incident um, reading about it, but I don't remember it because I wasn't alive then, but I remember reading about an incident. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a Delta 1011, uh, I believe. Yeah, it's Delta 1011, uh, Lockheed 1011, uh, where the position of the stabilizer didn't match the position of the um, whatever the, the the trim indicator was in the cockpit, but in the cockpit it was it showed it as being you know in the green bands or in the in the in the in the range where it should have been. And I remember uh, reading how the aircraft started rotating early, um, prematurely rotating, and uh, the captain. Um, he was able to, you know, just thinking on his feet and just identify the problem right away. And, uh, as, as they got off, off the ground, he introduced a bank and they just that and, you know, and, and basically controlled the pitch with a bank. And, uh, he was able to kind of do this fugoid all over the place and try to figure the thing out and come back around and land it. Um, you know, very outside of the box thinking. Um, but he saved the day that was also that it, it is right. I mean, if, if you are, if you find yourself in a position where you can't control pitch, you know, the nose is going up. Um, that's the, you know, that's what they teach you. You know, you have to reduce that vertical component of lift. And the way you do that is by banking the aircraft, bringing the nose back down and, you know, trying to get the situation under control that way. Um, Delta airlines flight 1080 was a scheduled flight, um, April 12th, 1977 during a San Diego to Los Angeles. Leg of the flight. There you go. That's the one. That's the one that Rick is talking about. We'll try to remember yeah. to put that in the show notes so you can read about it. Micah has yeah. a question there, Joe. Okay. Uh, Micah has a question from our live audience. There are some cargo carriers where the first officer is also the loadmaster. Are there not? Um, I don't know about the loadmaster, but he certainly or she certainly loads the airplane. I know that's the case with um, your smaller um, Part 135 outfits like uh, Ameriflight, maybe. So that's the one that comes to mind. Um, single pilot operation type stuff. Um, like, But... Um, 121, um, you know, heavy jets kind of stuff that I fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, uh, you have a dedicated uh, loadmaster um, because, I mean, you have to – it's not only about, you know, where to put what uh, based on weight to optimize your center of gravity and your cruise speed and altitude and all that, uh, all that other stuff. You also have to think about um, uh, hazardous materials. Um, you, you can't put one type of cargo next to another type of cargo because it might be reactive – and uh, you have to, you know, you, you have to load the airplane based on uh, what's called the segregation of schedule. Um, you, know, you can't have, uh, like, just to be very, very, you know, you can't have some flammable next to a fuel, for example, you know, so, so stuff like that. So that's, it's, it's, it's very, very involved. And when you have uh, hundreds of tons worth of cargo, worth, worth of freight, you need someone, you need an entire department that that uh, that deals with that. So yeah. that's that's not that's not a one who has a master's degree or a doctorate in loading cargo. <laughs> I tell you what, I mean it's um <laughs> we as freight pilots put our lives in their hands and uh we um we trust them that you mm-hmm. know we trust that they're doing their job. Um 
you know, they're doing it right. And, like, and, and, and they want to do their job right as well, because a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll carry these load masters around with us because we'll fly to places where we don't have company load masters. So they have to fly with us. So it's in their best interest as well that they do their job, you know, right as well. Right. Time All to right. get to know Rick. It's uh, now, guess what? It's time to get to know Miami Rick. Oh, there's the getting to know us. Uh, that's my thing. favorite hat. Oh, don't, you know, I, know. I see Miami Rick wa- wearing this all the time. I do. I do. attractive hat. You ever see me, you know, walking down the terminal with that hat? Just come up and say hello. <laughs> yeah. And same yeah. with me. You know, you, I have one very similar, yeah. uh, different color. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so it's the time of the show where we get caught up with um, everybody, but in this case, Miami Rick. So yeah. what have you been up to, man? Been a couple of weeks. Uh, well, it's uh, it was... Um, it's been a it's been a great couple of weeks, great great couple of days. Uh, I uh, I flew what may have been perhaps my my last seven sixty seven flight in my career. I very likely will not get to fly a seven six again. Um, because one does that make you uh, sad? Yeah, it kind of does. It really does because the seven six seven was my was my first jet. It was the first jet I ever flew. It was the first jet I ever his first you know, love. Uh, got my command on um and i uh, out of my entire career uh the half of it's been on the 767 i went from you know flying a cessna 206 to a 767 um i know back in the early 2000s and so it's uh that 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 aircraft that jet has really does have a special place in my heart yeah um and so I did. Um, I mean, as 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 you all know, I mean, it's no secret. Everybody knows now. I'm going back to the 747 uh, as a captain, and gonna start doing that. Yeah, going back to school Woo-hoo! here uh, next week, actually, down in Miami. Nice. Um, and so, um, yeah, we did. Um, what did I do? I uh, flew out as a passenger from here down to Puerto Rico, down to San Juan. I was in San Juan for a couple of days. Nice layover down there, and then um, uh, we flew a uh, freighter jet from San Juan down to Cincinnati. <laughs> and that was an interesting evening because it was a very, very, uh, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was a, it, it, yeah, very active line of weather there, um, to the Southeast, um, of Cincinnati that we had to, you know, navigate through, uh, made it, uh, made it okay. Landed okay. Uh, after again, you know, Got shook around a little bit, but it was it was it was no problem. Got uh, got to the hotel, had a couple of beers with my FO, and then uh, called it a night. <laughs> it was one of those. Yep. Uh, and then uh, the following day, we uh, uh, what did I do? Oh, um, they flew me from from Cincinnati to um, to Baltimore, and then from Baltimore, I did a um, I we um, ferried an empty passenger jet from Baltimore down to Valdosta. And then spend the night in Valdosta because the following morning we were taking um, the military brass, the high brass uh, out of that, uh, I think it's Moody Air Force Base down there, yeah. mm-hmm. um, over to San Juan, Puerto Rico again. So we flew them uh, to San Juan, which was nice. And then uh, we ended, uh, after we dropped them off, we flew that jet over to uh, Baltimore and then called it a night then. Um, so that was the last time I flew a passenger jet and I thought that was going to be my last flight on the seven, six and that, and, and, and that's what my schedule reflected. Uh, but at, at the very end there, they, they gave me, um, another, um, couple of legs there. So I had a, a flight from Cincinnati to, uh, uh, Stockton 
And then the following day was Stockton to Rockford and then Rockford to uh, Cincinnati, which was nice because it was a very short uh, little flight. We went up to 23,000 feet. And my FO, uh, Andy Stafford, great, great guy, good friend of mine. He was gracious enough to let me have uh, both legs, both sectors, uh, nice. since it was my, that was my last uh, 767 flight. So uh, I, uh, on, on the last little sector there from Rockford to Cincinnati, it was about 50 minutes, 45 minutes. So, uh, and we never made it up to our VSM airspace. So we just, I just hand flew the whole thing. And it was, it was a nice way to kind of end it there. So, uh, and I tell you, it, uh, it, 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 it hit right here a little hmm. bit. It really did. It really did. How was the landing? Uh, it was great. Great landing. Okay. Great, great landing. It really <laughs> was. I mean, you're like I, going, okay, this is probably the last time you, I'm ever going to land this airplane. Exactly. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that. It's like, oh man, better be a good one. Yeah. And it was, and it was, uh, it was good. Parked it. And, uh, I tell you, it would shut that, uh, turn the APU on. And then it would, when it came time to shut the engines off, it was like, oh, this is it one last time. Shut the engines off, did the post flight, and then yeah, it was it was oh, it was sweetheart. it was it was something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. But you know, on to on to better, bigger mm-hmm. things. Um, seven forty seven, mm-hmm. you know, Definitely Queen bigger. of the Skies. I get to fly her again. Mm-hmm. Get to. Uh, I've been. Um, I was I was talking to uh, Jeff and Liz before we started here because uh, I have to sit through, um, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the system stuff, a lot of the operational stuff kind of on my own here, uh, before I show up for school. Um, and, um, it's, you know, is computers, computer-based training CBTs, which is kind of what we, what we go through, uh, every, every couple of months, uh, us airline pilots. But in my case, I had to go through everything on the 747 again, cause it's been hmm. four years, almost four years since I've flown, um, uh, that jet. And so, uh, but it's coming right back, you know. It comes right back. It's uh, that's the beauty about Boeing. The beauty, the beautiful thing about Boeing, it's it's just so simple. It's mm-hmm. just like you were saying, and it, it truly is. It's like a seven six with two more engines. Really, it's all it is. Yeah. So uh, it, it's all coming back. So uh, looking forward to going to school next week, and then um, should be checked out hopefully by the end of the month, and then I'll do uh, a couple of sectors uh, for uh, operating experience. So I'll fly with an instructor pilot a couple of legs. I don't know how many. And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, get uh, released back to the wild, and uh, you'll see me at your friendly neighborhood airport hopefully soon. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. One of these days, I'd like to go on a couple of flights with you. Maybe after you I should. retire. Yeah, that'd be fun. You should. You should. Oh wait, great. I won't be able to do it after you after I well, retire. Well, I mean, I tell you, if if you're gonna <laughs> I need if to you're do gonna it come with, I retire. <laughs> if you're gonna come with, I gotta show you Hong Kong. You would love Hong Kong. Okay. I would, would love, love to do Hong that. Kong. We'll have to work great. that out. Yeah, we will. I have we some will. time here. That would be Absolutely. great. Okay. Awesome. All right. Um, so let's, uh, anything else, Rick, before we shift over to our feedback? Aisle? No, sir. I think, uh, okay. we're, I think we're caught up. Happy to be here. All right. Number um, 17. Number 17. Uh, this is from Tim Van Ram. You ever heard of that guy? Yeah, He's in our audience right now. Rings a bell. I'm just <laughs> yeah. kidding. Left him. He lives in Northern California, and he uh, he thinks he's the better looking of the two Van Ram brothers, but Mark uh, would probably beg to differ. <laughs> I think um, there are more Van Rams than two, but more Van Ram brothers. We only know two. But yeah, we only know two of the Van. Are there more Van Ram b- brothers? I really? believe so. Oh wow, I didn't know I that. So. Okay, well they're just shy, I guess. 
A doggy Tim. update. Tim, Tim wants a doggy update. Uh, <laughs> dogs are doing great. In-laws are in town, so they brought their two, uh, their German Shepherd and their uh, Belgian Malinois. So at the moment, we have six dogs in the house. Oh, well, really, oh, five and a half because Jada, our um, our senior German Shepherd, she's 13, 13 and a half. So she's yeah, she's up there. Uh, she she can't walk anymore, so oh. I have to carry her everywhere. And I bought her a little. Little um, Sling. little wagon that I strap her down mm-hmm. on, and I take her out, and you know, take her, take her out, so she can you know, get out of the house and and get to get to you know see see the outside world a little bit. But That's it's cool. really sad because she's uh, she's all there, you know, she's mm-hmm. she's all there. She's a little perky, like a little puppy sometimes. She's eating fine. She's great, but she she just she just can't walk anymore. So it breaks mm-hmm. my heart. Okay. Uh, and then the, the the rest of the dogs are great. You know, just Lucy. She's my she's my pride and joy. That little girl. So. Uh, just happy. Well, so you so. have a Jada, and uh, Captain Nick has a Zeta. Yep. Uh huh. Getting right. complicated. I was thinking, it is. It There's is Tim Van Ram. Yep. One more brother yep. and a very cute sister. So, oh, thanks, Tim Van Ram says, Tim. indeed, there are more family. One more brother and a very cute sister. Okay, cool. There you go. Awesome. Okay, well, you know, we okay, were just talking 17. about, um, you know, the Boeing and, mm. uh, and uh, of course, the other brand out there the uh the uh, airbus the, the, have, no the, gene- the generic brand <laughs> yeah so uh tim writes in uh airplane identification is something we all shout out when we were we are with just about anyone when yeah. i was a kid i could identify general aviation overhead by the engine drone as we get older we would learn to identify military aircraft both current and vintage some may still struggle he says me with commercial aircraft those of you that fly passengers and freight are immersed in the business and are quick to know what manufacturers and model. How many in the community can boast their knowledge of plane spotting? I'm certain many are quite good at it. I'm sending the attached to help tell the difference in at least the two big builders of commercial jets. I found it quite helpful and took joy in the fact that the strobes on the aft make the difference easy to spot at night. I think Captain Nick will even have some very clever quips to add to this discussion. Now, sadly, we're not going to hear any of those very, very wonderful, entertaining quips, I'm sure, from Captain Nick. <laughs> He's not here with us tonight. And in a way, I'm kind of glad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. So, I, I, can, I, can, I can do a British accent, though, if that will okay. keep you happy, Tim. Uh, it's, it's, it's junk. <laughs> I'll tell you, that Boeing piece of crap. I wish I'd flown a Boeing, I'll tell you, Rick. I really should have. I've, I bit the wrong jet, and I'm sorry for it. Oh, wow. Well, actually, he, he sort of does admit that. Now, that's what he wanted to fly oh, yeah. when he first got hired. Well, his, uh, his, uh, his, old man, uh, his old man flew yeah. Boeings, and uh, yep. he's, uh, you know, just, he, he loved them. Um, yep. So. Well, okay, so I'm going to... I'm going to start out by saying uh, whoever is the author of this, I mean, they did a, this is almost an impossible job to do. I'll just say that to, to like, because there are a lot of general generalities um, in, in this. And, and we'll, we'll talk about some of them here as we go along. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I laud the, the attempt to kind of point out the difference, but it's just not, there are so many exceptions to what this article says about aircraft identification as far as, you know, between the Boeing and the Airbus. But. You know what? I, I kind of gathered that what he was – this article was was, was more, um, I guess, uh, focusing on differences between the 737 and the 320. Right. Um, 
you know, uh, not not as not not between Boeing and Airbus uh, per se, but uh, the two the two uh, I guess most uh, popular variants uh, right. of that of each manufacturer's. Um, which, um, but yeah, I mean that's it's. I mean, for someone that doesn't you know you know breathe aviation twenty four seven, this is certainly helpful. Yeah, exactly. I'm not trying to. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it's it's almost an impossible thing unless you have a a book that talks about all the differences between airplanes and everything else. Because for instance, the one I believe that Liz has up right now in the um, window is uh, the, the windows, the win- um, how they're arranged on a, on a Boeing and an Airbus. Uh, but the more modern, both the mo- most modern Boeing, the 787, and also the most modern A350, I'm not sure that this is still the case when it comes to the way the windscreens are arranged and the other thing is the uh, the nose the shape of the nose again you know the the uh, 330 the 320s that kind of thing and this looks more like a, a 330 um, Airbus and uh, mm-hmm. the Boeing looks like a maybe a 737 and it's true That's the older Boeings have the yeah. pointier noses and stuff like that but you know you look at the 787 it doesn't have a pointed nose at all you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. that's why it's kind of, and then uh, the, probably the most obvious, the thank you, Liz, is this one where they're talking about the engines and this article makes it sound like all Boeing's nacelles look like this and yeah. no, it's only the 737 model exactly. that has the look, the flat looking bottom of the engine nacelle. And and the thing with the 737, you have to keep in mind that um, the 737 is a design that's been basically untouched from the moment it came out. You know, back in the back in the 60s, uh, this Boeing uh, really uh, has, you know, they've, they've stretched and stretched and stretched that jet to the point where um, it's become. <laughs> kind of funny <laughs> but uh and so uh you know uh the, the reason why the reason why i mean you know not including the the 737 max where you know you you have the larger engines and they mm-hmm. have to redo the landing gear and, and and lengthen the landing gear and all that other stuff um uh, but but you know you, you talk about your your classic 737s and then and then and the next gen th- 737s uh you know your your 300 400 500 600 700 and then the 800s and 900s you're going to have that in a cell configuration. There's something more, more, some more noticeable than others because the the length of the landing gear, the, the height of the landing gear is basically the same. So for you to be able to fit the engine under the wing, you need to flatten it out. Otherwise, you'd be, you know, you, you'd have to put wheels on the engines as well. And so it's <laughs> scraping that in the cell. Exactly. And so and, and and the and the 320, the 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 Airbus 320 design was a new design. Uh, Kind of a new design because the 320 um, is a descendant of the um, of um, in a way uh, the um, there was a it was an airliner a French made airliner called the Mercure and so the the, the 320 kind of comes from that um, but you know and it, but it was a new design and so uh, Airbus has been able to to, to kind of work uh, with a clean sheet you know from a clean sheet of paper from the beginning whereas Boeing didn't and so um, that's where that kind of comes from there right. Now, I don't know. I don't know if there are still a three hundreds in service as passenger. Oh yeah, oh, no, I know passenger. They're, no, they're freighters for sure. But uh, in this article, it talks about well, if you can look into the cockpit, um, if you see the you know the classic yoke, then that's a Boeing. If you see a side stick, then that's a an Airbus. Mm-hmm. An Airbus well, right. hang on. <laughs> the yeah. uh, the three twenty was the first to have the side stick controller, then the three thirty mm-hmm. and the three fifty and the three forty. But before that. 
the A300 um, had, had did not have a side and stick. The, and, and the 310. The 310 also. The 310 as well, yes. Had a regular mm-hmm. conventional yoke. Mm-hmm. So as I, as I said, you know, it's it's hard <laughs> it's hard to cover all of these things and probably for you know the general public, this is a pretty good, you know, way to kind of tell the difference. Yeah. But uh it's not completely accurate. There are a lot of exceptions, I guess. Yeah, and no, I'm not jealous about your damn tray table, so stop asking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What'd you say, Liz? <laughs> The A220 that used to be... No, I think the A220 has a uh, side stick controller as well. But A220 is a side stick, but but mm-hmm. remember, A220 is not really an Airbus. A220 no, is a Bombardier. It's a, a Bombardier, but it yeah. does have a side stick controller. But it has a side stick. So yeah. so, does, so does, for example, the um, who, the, the Falcon, I believe a couple Falcon uh, business jets have side, uh, side sticks. Yeah, a lot and, of the uh, uh, Gulfstreams do too. The, the Gulfstream do, do as well. G500, exactly. G5000, mm-hmm. 650, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. you know, as I said, in general, you know, using general terms, it's it's pretty. You know, you're more likely than not to uh, sound like you know what you're talking about. If exactly. You read this article. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else cool. to say about that, Rick? Um. No. I, I thought it was a. I thought it was a good article. I yeah. Thought it was. Uh, you know. It, it hit on all the basics, and yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's good stuff. It's 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 enough to get you uh, to whet your appetite. And uh, yeah. go in there and uh, do a little bit more research yourself. So, Nigel has a question one. in the show. Let's see. The Nigel Ward chapter. says in our uh, live audience that Airbus appears to have a door on the right side too. Does it not? I don't know where. Door on the right side, as in the cabin, not a cargo like door, the... but like a cabin door. Well, a lot of airplanes have doors on the right side for galleys. Um, yeah, exactly. The galleys yeah. are on the right side, and and uh, yeah, and my you airplane need to... has a galley. So At, it's a tiny also, little door. Well, and also. Well, yeah, exactly, and and also uh, on on seven thirty sevens and three twenties and all that. Remember, those doors also have um, escape slides because uh, you need to be able to mm-hmm. evacuate the aircraft within a certain period of time, and so you need as many doors as possible. Right. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, very they, good. They can study up from the show notes. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. All right. Um, and we're going to do that by pointing you toward our website, airlinepilotguide.com. It's a great place to find out more information about the show, the uh, the crew, the audience, or the the community, I should say. A community calendar is there. We have the uh, the APG library, uh, our librarian, Tiffany. Ju- Nick just covered. Oh, yeah. The There's a new uh, book that um, Nick just covered and um, is uh, I think Tiffany will go ahead and add that to the list of books if you're uh, the kind of person that likes to read things. And uh, we have merchandise and we have more information, more detailed information about each of the plane tales that uh, Captain Nick updates and uh, oh, so much more. Please check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also on social media or what I like to call the social meets. The social meets, we're with it. We're hip. Yeah, we are. Uh, at Twitter, <laughs> I just go... Uh, <laughs> Go and check out the at APG Crew. Everything APG Crew related is on there on that uh, page there. And Facebook, we're um, Facebook slash Airline Pilot Guy. Everything APG related on Facebook, you can find it there. And Instagram, APG Crew. Lots of cool pictures on there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for the slackers out there, yeah, I think I think you need to contact Hillel for that. Well, the slacker in charge. Let's see if he is um, available to uh, tell us about that quasi-social yeah, media. 
Hey, hello. Hello, can you do the slack thing? That's all right. Come on over here. We're used to it. Um, wait, <laughs> That's how we that, like you. <sighs> Hillel, put a towel on. Gosh. I was going to ask you. It looked like uh, oh, I saw, I saw yeah. the reflection. Oh, boy. There are, <laughs> there are, there are children in the audience, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Come over here. Sit down. Tell us about Slack, please. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Fire in the hole. Okay. <laughs> I got to get me one of those bathrooms. Man. Yeah, I know. Isn't that nice? Good luck with that. All right. We do appreciate him uh, managing that uh, that uh, endeavor. And uh, let's see. What else? Should we, is there anything else? That, oh, yeah. I know something that we need to do. We need to thank Liz, our producer. Come on in, Liz. Absolutely. All right, there we would be is. remiss if we did not. Yes, Hi, we would be. Thank you, guys. And also, my pleasure. Something. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably going to be very close to a very special day. Liz's birthday on the Sunday. Oh, ah. Yeah. Happy yeah, birthday. Another year right. older and deeper in debt. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> right. guys. And sure. wiser, too. Yeah, definitely wiser. Yeah. Well, Although, I don't know. Thanks, She's guys. producer for this show. I'm not sure if she's very wise <laughs> yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. Rethink my life choices there. <laughs> you might have to. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Liz, for everything. And, and I mean, she does a lot of work, so really appreciate it. Always great to see you, Rick, and I'm glad you were able to join us. Thank you, guys. And, great uh, to see you guys. Good well. luck with your studying and uh, your sim training and everything else. Can't wait to uh, hear how that went and uh, how that first flight is commander on that 747. Yeah, I got I to gotta take and show you the wrong side of the world. Great. That's going to be a good time. Oh yeah. God, make, we got to make that happen. We okay. got to make that happen. All right. You let me know. All right. We'll do. All right. Okay. That's it. So uh, wishing everybody um, a great, uh, the rest of their weekend and a great week and uh, clear skies, unlimited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. See you next time, everybody. Take care. Be good. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But 
But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly, oh 